Welcome to the Reptile Gumbo Podcast, episode 81. It's because you slept too long. In our brand new mattress. A two-hour nap is much better than a four-hour nap. I'm just saying. Nap. Y'all are cute with y'all's naps. <laughs> <laughs> I got home from the shop at 6.30. Oh. Yeah. Did you eat? Do I need to go, like, fix no, no, you we food? Had, <laughs> we had really good dinner. Good. Oh. So, anyways. Oh. Uh, I've been looking forward to this episode. But let's get our your interest stuff out of the way. Yeah, she doesn't have a pull. I'm back. not ready. I forgot. I wasn't here last week. It threw me off. You haven't been here a lot of weeks. Softball. Yeah, so now we're on Tuesday for anybody. That- we are on Tuesdays. You can blame softball for that one. Thanks to, thanks to Texas softball at 7.30 at night. When it's only 97 degrees. <laughs> Instead of 107 <laughs> Yeah, but in... Late October, you might get a cold front where it's in the third. LaVissa was messaging me about something today. And she's like, yeah, it's getting down in the 50s here already at night. And I'm a little oh, worried. Sure, I'm like, like I just, I'm going to delete you. I don't mean yeah. anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought it was good the other day when it was like at nighttime and it was 80. My sister-in-law is in West Virginia and it was 74. That was the high the other day with a 74 degree heat index mm-hmm. and a breeze. And I'm like, it's not that I hate you. I just hate your current weather. All right. Do you want to do I do. If you're looking for a high-quality PVC rack, look no further than Lone Star Reptile Racks. They offer a variety of sizes for all types of snakes, geckos, rats, and more. You can even order something custom. Shipping is available, or you can pick up at a Herps Reptile Show near you. Visit lsreptileracks.com to reach out to Lone Star Reptile Racks and place your order today. Why? I'm going to stab you in the throat. (laughs) See? Look. Makes me choke. You're going to kill Robert. It's unacceptable. It gives him the vid. Unacceptable. I'm pretty sure I gave you the vid. That's true, but I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) See, look, victordeath.com. He's a listener. You can't yell at listeners. Sure, I can. Victor, (laughs) don't encourage him. (laughs) Oh, um, dude, I have to tell you the funniest thing I saw on the internet this week was you telling your dad you don't always have to be right. Dude, they get into fights more often. The best part is, so we get into a fight, and then I leave it, and then my super liberal friends will start getting into a fight with my dad. I'm like, all right, God. An hour later, his dad calls, and we're in the car, and it's just like nothing has happened. Because it's nothing personal. No. They're so funny. Whereas I will hold a grudge for a week. But it's totally personal for the people that get in on the argument. Well, like Chris Eaton's post. <laughs> the one you shared, the one, the one shared. that you and your dad were arguing yeah. on. It, so, people keep commenting, and Chris is like, "Shut the fuck up." So, anyways, the whole the whole post was some meme about uh, I didn't even ignoring science, people ignoring science and yeah. everything, and calling it calling their research, doing their own research. Yeah, and Chris Eaton posted it just because he's a dick. You know, it was funny. And then people were like taking it serious and like like leaving big long comments and everything. Like your vaccination, so I had vacation. Yeah, those yeah. People that, like didn't read that one right either. Yeah. So I had a whole response like typed up to the one guy. And I was like, in other news, Florida, man, because the one guy who kept commenting with the little green thing was Florida, not only uh, doubled down and not only proved to us that he's a, that he's an asshole, but he's also a fucking idiot. And I was like, eh, I'll probably get you kicked off Facebook. That's so, for some reason, right before I went to bed last night, I decided on like three different posts just to be a dumbass. 
There's one, the Black <laughs> Dude, Panther sometimes one. Sometimes I go to bed and I'm going to be surprised on my phone in the morning when I wake up. Did you see the one on the Black Panther one? So there's someone posted some dead bobcats. And I was like, oh, y'all right. are idiots. Don't come online talking about stuff you don't know. Those are dead Black Panthers. Everyone knows that the melanin goes away when they die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a rough green snake that turns blue. I <laughs> just started ranting about stupid shit. I forget the other's another one in there somewhere. Where I was just like, let's just say stupid shit and see if you might realize it's a joke. Yeah. Uh, Not anyway. my group. <laughs> uh, also, Herps, we mentioned Herb's Reptile Shows. This weekend is the big uh, Conroe show. Mm-hmm. Excited about that one. That's going to be a good one. Uh, you've got a lot of work. You ready for that one? Are you almost ready for it? We're getting there. Sweet. Oh, we'll be packed up. Midday Thursday, we'll be there early Friday to unload. Sweet. He'll be driving over right after school. I have Lucas is going with us this weekend. Oh, great. Someone to load stuff outside. That's right. <laughs> I figured James would appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to go outside. Uh, the I will say, if you're looking on the Herps website, the New Orleans show for September 25th and 26th, obviously, uh, been canceled. Yeah, I've had like four people this week trying to make pre-orders for that show, and I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, damn. I mean... It's we- at this point, there people in New Orleans are hoping they have electricity. Uh, so, yeah, so. it's, it's rough over there. Yeah. Um, I think I talked about it last week. I'm, I'm, I was heartbroken. Just I keep seeing pictures of Grand Isle and of Point of Shan down there by Homa, and it's just it's it's all gone. Uh, that's horrible. But October second and third, Beaumont, Texas. Come out and see that show. That's an awesome uh, venue. Still, I still like that place, the Ford Arena or whatever it is. They're having a lot of issues with that place, though. Are they really? I follow KFDM News. It's Beaumont News. My dad lives out there, and you know. Part of my life, I've been out there a lot, and I follow their local news station. So, about a year ago, the county made a deal. It's been a drain on the county budget for years. That has it's been a money losing thing for them. Really, for the put the upkeep and all that with the Ford Park and the baseball. They already sold off the baseball fields to some big tournament group, hmm. and uh, they've uh, they made a deal with this this company to take it over, and they haven't written them a check yet, and the. Uh, County commissioners are starting to talk about canceling that contract, which could cause problems with that venue. County's like, we can't afford to run it anymore. So if they don't the buy venue, it, we're going to shut not, it down. Because it's not just, I mean, it's the convention center where we're at. It's the giant arena next to it. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the big outdoor concert. I mean, that area. place has like like big name acts come yeah. there and play. It's, it's a it's a B-level market. So the problem is it's in Beaumont. Right. But it's close enough to Houston. And close enough to Lake Charles that it draws yeah. a pretty good crowd. I actually like the venue. I've been to a couple of concerts there. It's it's a good venue. So come out and see us October 2nd and 3rd in Beaumont. Uh, Temple, Texas, October 23rd and 24th. Uh, and then I'm sure as hell not driving out to Amarillo, Texas, October 30th, 31st. But but Robert is. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I'll be there. He'll be in Amarillo. It's about 700 miles away from here. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> um, it is about 700 miles. <laughs> <laughs> it's about 700 miles away from here. It's a, It's a complete day's drive. All right. Also, if you are anywhere around South Alabama, Southeast Alabama, or if you just want to take a trip by that way, go by and see Wiregrass Exotics in Ozark, Alabama. Uh, take advantage of their awesome feeder program. <coughs> they had some great animals I saw for sale the other day. They posted online. So you should also follow Wiregrass Exotics on Facebook. But go by and see the Ruas. That place, I, I really I wish that we didn't live so far away from Alabama. I really want to go there. But we will make it there. It doesn't somewhere. hurt that we have really good friends that are like, like 30 minutes away. Yeah. I know. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, Herp's Reptile, the Exotic Reptile and Pet Shop. The Herp's Shop is opening on September 29th. 
They moved it. No, they moved it up, didn't they? Yeah, the twenty eighth or twenty ninth. They moved it up from October. No, it's the thirteenth. Thirteenth. It's Lori's week. It's Lori's birthday weekend. Thirteenth and fourteenth of November. No, no, no. no. She just made a post a little while ago that they're opening. They're soft opening. It was supposed to be. We should probably pay attention to these things. Their soft opening was supposed to be. She put it right here. Herb Show vendors. Uh, Enjoy our. I don't know. She put it somewhere. Anyway, anyway, they're opening the because Rachel's birthday is the twenty sixth, so they're opening like the twenty eighth now. Gotcha. And then their grand opening is going to be Lori's birthday. Gotcha. Oh, the soft opening is at the end of September. The yep. grand or the end of October. Yep. October, September. One of those months. When is Rachel's birthday? September. So the soft opening is in September, but the grand, grand opening, opening is, is November. November. This is riveting. I'm yeah. so glad everybody's listening. I hope y'all are enjoying this conversation. I mean, there's 15 people anyway, that so are hanging <laughs> up for it. We'll have more updates on that as it gets closer. They're not here for us. They're here for our, our guests. Let's be real. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to make, awesome. make the smart guys wait. One of them deserted <laughs> us. <laughs> I can see one ran away. He said, forget this shit. <laughs> Screw these guys. I'm going home. <laughs> I'll go ahead and bring our guest in. So our guests are, I'm going to do it alphabetically, Dr. Warren Booth. How's it going, Warren? Very well. How are you? And Dr. Travis Wyman. How's it going, Travis? I ain't calling you doctor. Forget you. Travis. So Travis sent a thing to me earlier. A year ago, we had him on. A year ago today. Really? Yeah. So apparently, I have him on way too much. That's what I'm finding out. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't feel like it's too much because I feel like it's been forever since I've seen you. (laughs) Well, if you would be on the podcast more. I'm sorry. Somebody has to be a parent to our child. Forget that kid. (laughs) She's old enough now. She can take care of herself because I'm let her live in the woods with wolves. Oh, my God. Uh, So I'm not going to uh, do the whole like if you learn about Warren, there's five million podcasts Warren's been on. You can go learn about Warren. Uh, I think the most recent was probably Chris's podcast, which was really both of y'all have recently been on Chris's podcast yep. on Snakes and the Fat Man. But uh, does anybody have a picture that looks even half as good as Travis's picture with that green snake? <laughs> I'm just you, saying. Did you say that green snake? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it looks really cool and it's a super amazing photograph. My wife gets all the credit for that. Yes, it was glorious. He tried his hardest not to look like a nerd. <laughs> See, that was that was for Chris when when Chris said I need a high resolution professional headshot and my wife overheard him say that like, oh, we, we can take care of that we'll just go down to the studio and nice. Chris started bugging me for days and I was like you don't understand as soon as my wife heard that we need to get into the studio she needs to edit and everything and when I said it to Chris he's like you man you just knocked this out yes hard. it was amazing <laughs> yeah it made it easy for me I just went and found it on Facebook for mine so. I'm glad Chris made you take pictures. Uh, LaVissa Ratliff <laughs> uh, is still talking about your cheesecake. The you raspberry posted. cheesecake. We talked about that before <laughs> we, we did, before we got on here. But she must, that's like the first thing that she said. Told, it was raspberry, LaVissa. I couldn't yeah. remember who, who it was. Raspberry cheesecake. So, for those that don't know, that Travis likes to make food for his coworkers. And that was for your daughter. Um, but he'll make. You can follow him on Snakes and Bakes. Or you can follow that other one, the Canadian one, which I'm sure is better. Snakes and Snacks or whatever it is. Shut up, James. Oh, I just think that was funny. How? Oh, uh, Victor wants to know how was the cabin, Warren? It was glorious. Yeah, really nice. Spent uh, kind of long weekend in the cabin in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, with some friends. 
So that really sounds really wonderful. Happy. Yeah. I still find it so funny you ended up in Oklahoma. I hear Broken Bow is a beautiful part of Oklahoma. Yeah, it really is. It's beautiful. You know, kind of in the foothills of the Wachita's and you know, with the nice lakes and rivers. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. James was surprised when we went to Oklahoma a few weeks ago, and he's like, there's a mountain here? I said, yeah, <laughs> drive right through a mountain. We, and we, drive, we drove past the mountain in Oklahoma. Well, no, when you go west in Oklahoma, it's <laughs> it's like not what you expect. It's nothing. It's flat and... Native Americans no. and Warren. There's nothing pretty in Shawnee. <laughs> uh, there's no money in Shawnee either, apparently. <laughs> you don't enjoy the, the casino? The flies? The fly. My God. <laughs> Warren, I don't know. Do y- y'all have a fly? No, you, you weren't at the rodeo, so I'm sure y'all don't have a fly problem where you were. We went up there for Shawnee for the Herp Show, and they had a rodeo like the week before, and they just, like, shoveled the shit and put it off to the side. And it had to be a million, literally a million flies. It was, yeah, I see. I see a lot more this year than I normally do see. Um, they're big, like yeah, oh, yeah, a lot more. Kind of weird. I don't know what it was, but we, you know, for the last kind of month, month, maybe two months, there was a whole pile of fruit flies at one point, and then a whole pile of like just house flies. You know, I, I've got no idea, but everybody was complaining about the same thing. There's totally a joke there about being a giant pile of shit. But look alone. John Grant is also in Oklahoma too. So John Grant another, is in Oklahoma. I make fun of him positive. all the time for it too. I moved to Texas. It's my job now to make fun of Oklahoma. That's I what we do. Totally missed that when we. I'm moved trying to fit in. I refuse to I'm do the Texas pledge. I'm still trying to learn the Texas so pledge. I'm not learning the Texas pledge. For anybody out there that doesn't realize this, Texas has a pledge that they say after the Pledge of Allegiance, and it every is morning. not good because we had our own country for it's, six years. But it's not even a good pledge. So. Yeah, it's not great. It's like random words. It doesn't even. A pledge. It makes it sense. Yeah. Well, it's really funny on the morning announcements this morning because we have students that help with those. The little B, like first grader, went to say the Pledge of Allegiance and totally said the Texas Pledge instead of the kid. Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> I was like, oh, goodness. I'm not pledging to Texas. <coughs> I don't care how long I live here. <coughs> oh, anyways. Uh, so I wanted to have y'all on for a genetics le- uh Not lesson. No. Not having it's going to be lesson. a lesson for Katie. It will be for Katie. Katie's going to learn all about genetics. But I've been wanting to have y'all on because I, I find it hilarious on a certain Facebook page that we all seem to frequent about how people will just tell Warren and Travis they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> when it comes to genetics. And I love it. Yeah. I love every time it happens. Um, but last time I was good. I didn't even I didn't even tag you, Warren. Last time I just put your website there. John Grant did. So I would like to. <laughs> I would just like to state for the record when he says how much he loves this. I don't think you either fully understand. Because it ends up with him bursting into laughter in whatever room of the house he's in, and then like quickly coming to find me in the house and be like, "Look at what this idiot just said!" And I'm it, like, well, "I have no clue what's going on." It I have would be no one thing if, if it was like just like one time someone told uh, Warren he knows nothing about parthenogenesis and snakes, but every time someone mentions mentions parthenogenesis, his name gets brought up, and then someone is adamant about how it doesn't exist. I think like my the, favorite one was this last guy. that was the guy who, I read his... He kept going forever. Yeah, he, he was like, I've read his time. research and I don't agree. Yeah, yeah, I love that. He goes, I read his research. How about you? I was like, I've talked to the man. And, <laughs> and then he, he never said another thing again to me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I get, you know, you get that a lot. I just, I don't really spend any time on Facebook on groups or anything, you know, so it's, uh, I used to, and then I realized it just caused my blood pressure to increase, and I don't need that to happen. So you don't need that negativity that. in your life. Yeah, just throw I, that I out the window. So I, I, I don't really care, you know. So if people I, want I to do believe it, it cool. if they don't want to believe it, that's cool. I don't really care. <laughs> I, I just get on there now for the pure entertainment. Of I'm there for fun. Yeah. I love to laugh at stupid people. I mean, that's why I'm a high school teacher. I can laugh at kids all day long. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
What? They're stupid. <laughs> you know how many kids try to argue that mermaids are real? I teach babies. <laughs> and then their argument for, for mermaids reason. being real is that because we've ha- just because we haven't seen them doesn't mean they're not real? My biggest issue today was that it hurt when a kid did this to their wrist. And so my response was, well, then, baby, if that hurts, just don't do it. And then our whole day was better, and it was glorious. That was, that was your biggest issue that all day? That was my biggest issue all day today. Oh, my wrist hurts when I do this. I'm like, well, baby, let's not do that then. Come on. What, what should we my, do? My biggest issue is I have kids that don't speak English. Yeah. That could be rough. That could be rough. I luckily have kids that speak English and Spanish, and I just now have built-in translators in every class. You hope they're translating your lesson. That's true. They could totally just be making up what shit. What they did this weekend. Well, when I hear them laughing, I'm like, they're not talking about what we're doing, but I can't tell them to quit talking. Because at some point she is going to tell her what we're doing. So tell them to focus. Yeah. Learn the word focus in, in Spanish, Spanish. <laughs> and you're good to go. El focus. I've, I've been trying to convince myself to learn Spanish for about nine years. <laughs> I teach a course in the rainforest in Costa Rica, in a rainforest in Costa Rica every year. And uh, every year I come back and say, you know what? I need to learn Spanish. And every year I don't learn Spanish. So... The other four third grade teachers are bilingual at my school. And then there's me. The other four teachers are Hispanic at your school. And I stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, they all have like really nice Hispanic names. And then your last name is Lewis. And then it's like Lewis. I'm like, jeez. We teach it. I'm sure that's, can I say? No. I shouldn't say what well, no, but I do. I do teach it a very Hispanic. Well, the name of the school is name. Well, yes, <laughs> and she's a wonderful person, by the way. I oh, met yeah? her the you other day. She comes to the school all the time. Which is strange for me because I'm like, if you name a school after someone, shouldn't they be deceased? Dead, yeah. Like, <laughs> wait, did you tell that one? Hey, man, we're supposed to be no. dead. We named the school after you. <laughs> well, they build so many schools in the school district every year. They just they have to find people to name them after. There are so many schools here just named after people. I'm like, I can't keep up with that. Okay, we got really far off topic. Yeah. Let's get back to genetics. So, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I do. I, I actually had some. Uh, I had a partho question. I was thinking so. For anybody that doesn't know, uh, Warren has done a lot of work in parthenogenesis. Okay, um, pause. Can you, in layman's terms, explain parthenogenesis? Also, did I say it correctly? Yes. Me? Okay. 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 Yeah, I don't care. It's simply a when a female will produce offspring without the use of, of um, sperm from a male. So that the offspring will have no genetic contribution from a father. But they're not clones of the mother. Um, in the case of snakes, apart from one species, they're not clones of the mother. They're what we refer to as a half clone. So they've got one set of chromosomes. <clears throat> and that's essentially doubled. They're not exactly doubled, but they're essentially. Okay, so, so, they're, is- so they're basically homozygous across most of their genomes. So therefore, they're not very healthy. So what is the difference between that and an animal that is asexual and reproduces on its own? Uh, Because asexual organisms tend to, uh, that tends to be the main mechanism that they use. Um, So these asexual organisms are often formed from the hybridization of two different species. um, And therefore, instead of being diploid, so having a set of chromosomes from the mother and the father, they actually have three sets of chromosomes. Uh, generally two from the, mo- the mother and one from the father. So that means they, they simply, chromosomes can no longer pair and they can't, um, they can't uh, produce sexually, <clears throat> so they asexually. They also tend to be very short-lived species in evolutionary time, you know, kind of 20, 30, 40,000 years. They're not long-lived old species. Um, whereas those that are, the term that we use is facultative parthenogenesis, so they are uh, primarily producing sexually, 
and sometimes uh, they will produce asexually. Um, and that can be an entire clutch or an entire litter of offspring. It can be entire clutches or litters over the course of several years, or it can be just one or two offspring within a clutch or a litter. So they won't actually just like retain the sperm and then like four years down the road. They can do that as well. Snakes can do that. We have, but that's not parthenogenesis. No, no, that's just, that's long-term sperm storage. And we, we, um, we have two papers out that, um, are the longest documented instances of sperm storage in snakes that is genetically confirmed. And the longest is just over six years. Um, both both cases are in rattlesnakes, one eastern diamondback and one western diamondback rattlesnake. And they produced, I think the last paper came out, it was eight offspring, and the one in eastern diamondbacks was, I think, 19. Well, I still don't understand how this works. It's <coughs> fascinating. So that's, that's a really cool. That, the sperm storage is actually, it interests me a lot more than parthenogenesis because if you think about what's happening with a snake uh, in its annual cycle, especially the rattlesnakes, they're going from a very cold temperature whenever they're hibernating to very warm temperatures in the summer when they're basking. And they're going through the cycle year after year. Um, sperm should not store, viable sperm should not store throughout that period of time. Um, if you think about what happens with humans or with cattle, you know, they have to store sperm in sub-zero temperatures, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it lasts not a long... I, I've got a friend that breeds Irish wolfhounds, and they buy sperm for their Irish wolfhounds from Europe. And I think they said it normally lasts about three to four years. Oh, wow. And so if we understood the mechanism by which snakes can do this, then that would be a great way to actually revolutionize the whole sperm storage mm. market, which is huge in the world. Um, we have an idea of what they're doing, and we're about to start a study to look into it more. But ball pythons can do it over a couple of years. Colubrids can do it generally over a season, sometimes more. Um, some snakes, like copperheads, depending on where they are in their range, will mate before hibernation and then ovulate after um, after hibernation. Um, and blood pythons, we know, up to about three years. Boas aren't very good at it, but the, the, the real kings of it are the, or queens of it are the um, are the pit vipers or the, the, the rattlesnakes, realistically. So, right, cool. I had a question and it just totally just ran away. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so when an animal like a, like a corn snake double clutches, Mm. Is that basically just short term? Short, short term. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it, it could be long. We can still call it long term, but really, you know, if you, if you're a mammal, sperm stores for a couple mm. of hours, maybe a couple of days. The records are probably bats, which can do that store sperm maybe over a year. Oh wow! Um, but um, yeah, bats are cool in general for many things. Very long lived species, and that's just incredible. But um, corn snakes. Which you could call it a long-term sperm storage, but what you tend to find with double clutching, at least in my experience, I used to breed hundreds of corn snakes over the years, and the second clutch, if there was, if the female wasn't introduced to a male again, the second clutch tend to be um, tended to have a higher level of infertility. Huh. Um, but they could still store sperm. We have a, a new paper we're working on in uh, old world pit vipers, which is um, sperm storage for about the space of about a year or a year and a half. But the cool thing about it is that they produced offspring and then went through an entire cycle and then produced offspring again, and they were all healthy. So um, uh, the pit vipers tend to be the real the, the, this group that can that can store sperm really well, despite undergoing these um, sometimes really in- incredible fluctuations in temperature over the year. So I, I was kind of said earlier, but so does 
parthenogenesis technically count as asexual reproduction? Because when I think asexual, I think like yeast and budding or prokaryotic cells splitting in half. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just a form of that. Asexual reproduction is, is really quite diverse, and there's multiple forms of parthenogenesis. Snakes, there's one species, um, the Brahmini blind snake, they are triploid and they're clonal. Um, they use a different mechanism than, you know, every, every, every other snake species that we know of. And we have snakes, you know, we have lots of species of boas and pythons where we have records for it, or I have samples of the freezer. We've got lots of pit vipers. We have cobras recently. We had a paper on king cobras. Um, I've got samples from dumerils, boas, and so on. But uh, And we've got a bunch mm-hmm. of samples that I've never processed for uh, colubrids for, you know, corn snakes, king snakes, rat snakes. And they'll probably go on to the sequencer next. But um, they are using an, a, a form of asexual reproduction. It's just a facultative form. It's not their primary mode of reproduction, but it's something that they seem to have the ability to switch into um, and not infrequently. So with, I get emails on an almost weekly basis from ball python breeders and boa breeders about uh, about cases of parthenogenesis, and and I, I they asked me if I would test the samples for them. I no longer do that just because mm-hmm. I would. I don't. I I I never charged for it generally. Um, and I just, it, it takes too much time for whenever the, the answer is right there in front of them. You know, with the amount of morphs that are available and our, our understanding of heritability of morphs, we can tell straight away by the sex of the offspring and by the, by the captive, um, care or the captive story, you know, but, um, that the, that the breeders give us. Travis, you had partho babies this year, right? Yeah. Well, one. For ball pythons? Yeah. I had, a. Uh... I brought a piebald female to a compound heterozygote in a black pastel group, mm-hmm. and I got a straight piebald female out of it. Four egg clutch, only one egg went to term. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's another thing that, like, I've, I when people argue, I'm always amazed to talk about how uh, you always see someone go, well, it can't be parthenogenesis, it's not that common. And then every time I hear Warren, it's like, no, it happens all the damn time. If I. You know, my, I used to have a, a webcam that I could move around, but I don't know. Uh, but if literally 30 feet from me in my in my lab, I've got a huge chest freezer that is just full of parthenogens. <clears throat> and I mean, bottom to top, full of parthenogens. You know, reticulated pythons, Burmese pythons, blood pythons, ball pythons, children's pythons, Amazon tree boas, uh, boa constrictor, boa imperator, boa sigma. Uh, Dumerils boas, they're kind of cool because they've got a different recruitment system. Um, uh, there are a bunch of pit vipers, a bunch of rattlesnakes, a king cobra, That's um, cool. a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's not. It's you know, up maybe ten years ago, I would have thought it's uncommon, but now it, it's not uncommon. I, I don't believe it's uncommon at all. Um, many people overlook it. Many people um, when they produce them either don't know that they produce them um, or, um, you know, they just, they believe that they're, it turns out one of their animals, they think that one of their animals was a recessive, you know, a heterozygote. They, they didn't know about it. Um, and many of them will just sell the offspring for regular prices mm-hmm. and the offspring never do well. I don't, I don't have any live parthenogens anymore, but I've got about 130, I think it is in the freezer in there from lots of different litters and clutches. What's, well, Chris Eaton said, uh, one that he's a big fan of both y'all because 
Although I, that, I enjoy those interviews just because I know Chris, I know everything you said completely confused him. It was great. Hey, hey, we are not Bar-Shek judging Bar-Shek. people that <laughs> yeah. struggle with. He said, I said, you want to know if you were surprised that Barcheck was so shocked that his partho anaconda died? I'm never surprised that Barcheck is shocked at anything, <laughs> um, but especially not at a parthenogenetic anaconda died. All of the parthenogenetic anacondas that have been produced have died. So they were uh, produced in the West Midlands Safari Park just before Marco, just after Marco Shea left there. And I think three of them, they all died. Uh, there were two published, there was a paper, I think, published from Japan. Those ones were dead. I've got yellow anaconda parthenogens chilling out in the freezer. Um, so, yes, I wasn't. Well, think about what parthenogenesis is producing. It's producing an animal that's essentially homozygous across its genome. All right. So, any of these little, you know, <laughs> Uh, any of these genes that are mildly deleterious. Not what does that mean? Uh, not necessarily <laughs> that great. Right? <laughs> you don't want to have that them in a homozygous form. Yes, elementary so teacher. I got lots of them in a homozygous form. And Look, that I'm grading context really clues right now, so that tells you what level my brain is on. Right. Okay. <laughs> we see a lot of, in the thick fibers, for example, we see a lot of deformities. In the boas and the pythons, we don't see a lot of deformities, but they just don't last long. They, my oldest parthenogenetic boa lasted until about nine years. She bred at eight years, produced offspring that were healthy. Um, she produced five healthy offspring and four stillborns. Um, and then she never recovered, and she died a year later. Same thing with a ball, a ball python. It did the same thing, a parthenogenetic ball python. It's, they just don't do well. Most of them get to about two years of age, and then they just crap out. They don't grow very well. But then their metabolism just just fails on them. You know, they'll eat, but they just don't put on any weight. So, Brandon. Can, can y'all see the comments, first of all? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, Brandon, he asked a question. <laughs> that I was, them, you know, so. <laughs> Brandon asked a question that I was currently thinking. Because I know growing up, whenever you hear partho, it was always, well, it's when the male population is low, the females will have babies to give a better chance of being able to have other individuals that can breed. But with that said, we've already said that a lot of partho babies die fairly early. So is that still kind of the belief that they're trying to boost population numbers or is it something else? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One is, well, you know, they might just survive. And even if they, they, even if they themselves die after reproducing, then they may have produced several offspring that can then hopefully grow on and then mate with a male that comes into the population over time. The pit viper ones is, are a little bit better in that if they do produce a viable health, pit viper produce male parthenogens, boas and pythons produce female parthenogens, um, except for the, the Madagascan boas, they produce males because they're a different sex determining system. So if you're a pit viper and you produce parthenogenetically and you produce a healthy male offspring, within two years, that male, should, if it survives, should be able to breed back with the female. Yeah. Um, and we've been close to testing that, uh, and we're getting close again. We, I know I've got some some uh, colleagues and collaborators that have male parthenogens growing up that they're going to breed back to the mother that produced them. Um, the other thing is that it's not a detrimental trait, right? So when you think about natural selection, traits that are detrimental should be selected out in the population, right? So if they if they you know result in blindness, then you know, that's not a trait that animals necessarily will benefit from. And over time, that should be selected against. Those that are beneficial, you know, allowing it to survive in different temperatures and so on should be selected for. 
and therefore that would increase in frequency in the population. But something like parthenogenesis, that if a female produces parthen genetically, well, it doesn't kill her, right? Yeah. So therefore, the next year or two years later, if she, if she survives, she could produce sexually. And therefore, it's not a detrimental trait. So therefore, it's not necessarily going to be selected against. And Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, you know, we see it. It's not just in snakes we see it. We see it throughout the phylogeny of birds. So, in fact, pigeons were the first species ever to have been shown to be able to reproduce parthen genetically. Um, it's extensive in, in poultry. So there's a, there's a, a lineage of, of um, turkeys that are, have a high capacity to produce parthen genetically. Chickens can do it. Um, Chinese um, quail can do it. There's a new paper coming out on California condors that, have, that can do it. And then in um, it's widespread throughout sharks and so on as well, and some other species of fish. So um, it's not a <clears throat> necessarily a rare trait. It's just it's a, it occurs in a, in, a, in certain groups of organisms that lack a genetic mechanism that requires a male and female contribution. Um, so. I, I know the answer to this, but Lavisa in our chat asks, "Can a snake mate with a male and still have a partho hatch out?" And I know that was kind yeah. of. The most Absolutely. recent guy on on Facebook that wanted to argue said that's impossible, but I had, yeah, it definitely can. Yeah, I had a I had somebody contact me recently, a ball python breeder um, that had a male mate with several females, and those and those several females produced parthenogens. Um, mm-hmm. I was contacted by somebody two or three years ago that was the same case: a male bred three females, and all female all three females produced parthen genetically. Which makes us question: What's the driver of it? What causes parthenogenesis to occur? So, in those so situations, did did, you know, did they also produce sexually produce babies, or were they only partho babies in those clutches? And those, they were all partho. So, is there a <laughs> chance that uh, the mating triggered it? Since there was no actual, maybe his sperm doesn't work or whatever, it triggered the partho and the females since well, they were ready. Well, that's the thing: we don't know that the we don't know that the the male produced non viable sperm. You know that's the that's the first thing that you need to look at. But in birds, there's some evidence that parthenogenesis can be triggered by viruses. Oh. Um, it's thought to be a single. So from the work on turkeys, it's thought to be a single um, recessive trait. So um, it's something that could increase in the population through inbreeding. Uh, it's something that can increase extensively in captivity because with snakes, we inbreed the shit out of our snakes, right? Yeah. And it's a, it's know, a fairly small been, gene pool. Yeah, I've been breeding. The data that we get, we have coming back on whole DNA, whole genome sequencing of boas and pythons shows very little genetic diversity in captive populations of captive individuals. Populations are, are diverse, but people aren't necessarily breeding in a diverse way. They're buying a pair of individuals from a clutch or a litter yeah. and breeding those together and then breeding offspring from those together. They're not necessarily doing these outbreeding projects. So, in, in captivity, people tend to inbreed extensively because reptiles seem to be relatively resilient to the effects of inbreeding. But with that, you will then see the, these um, recessive traits. These, um, if, if parthenogenesis is indeed a recessive trait, you'll see that increasing in frequency. And indeed, that's what we're seeing. But what we don't know is that you know prior to um, 1997, like 2000, whenever we started to really see more to the market, um, people were producing ball pythons, and Burmese pythons, and so on that weren't morphs, 
um, they wouldn't necessarily have known that they were producing parthenogens because they just everything was normal anyway. Yeah, it could have already been there. My my feeling is that it already was there, and people were just not noticing it. Because the first reptile I remember really hearing about doing partho was Komodo dragons, like in zoos. <laughs> yeah, that was in two thousand and five, I think it was. Two thousand six in London, but that, London, that's yeah. so like you just walk in and there's babies, and you weren't yeah. expecting babies. I've got, I've got tissue from parthenogenetic komodos around here somewhere. Um, just I've to have. I've got a parthenogenetic salvador. Salvatori, Piranha Salvatori in the freezer. So why do you keep all of these? Like just so we, can, we can use the tissues for other stuff. You know, it's better to have this kind of bank of tissues that we can delve into over time than not to have it. So um, for I'm, like future studies and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the the first records in, in reptiles were actually in 1997. Um, a really good friend of mine, Gordon Shewitt, um, people who breed carpipythons and Hog Islands and uh, Brazilians might know the Shewitt line animals. Gordon Shewitt was a was a professor. This is a professor. Um, you know, he works for Bob Ashley over at the Chiricahua Desert Museum. Um, but he's a, a very very skilled um, evolutionary biologist that works primarily on reptiles. Um, he um, and Steve Macasey, who works on venom, and a bunch of other people put out a paper on um, two species of thamnophis, so two, two species of garter snakes and two species of rattlesnakes that were produced, that produced parthen genetically. And in that same journal, there was a paper on, um, uh, on file snakes, the um, acrocordus file snakes that produced a parthenogen. And I know those two papers were proved to be really difficult to get published. They got bounced around lots of journals because the authors didn't believe them, or the editors didn't believe the story. The, the reviewers didn't believe that it could occur. It's, it's early Facebook. <laughs> yeah, and it finally did, they finally did get published. And then there was a gap until 2004 with snakes whenever a paper came out in Burmese pythons. Um, and then there was a gap again pretty much until 2010 whenever I put out the paper on boas. There was a couple little ones before then, but pretty minor. Um, and then after that, it kind of everything hit the fan, and um, we saw a lot of papers come out from a lot of different people on parthenogenesis and snakes now, and, and widespread across the snake phylogeny. So everything from the boas and the pythons right the way through to the advanced kind of snakes. So Travis, I want you to answer this question for Lavissa since you had it happen recently. She asked, uh, so if you've bred a female and she has a partho clutch, how did you know that the egg that hatched was partho? What what is it that gave it away for you? It's, I mean, the big thing for me was that I bred it to what was essentially a super form, and the animal I got out didn't carry either of the genes from the father. Um, So that just should not be possible. Um, And that's that's how a lot of these parthoclutches get identified, is essentially what would be considered impossible combinations or impossible phenotypes. You know, if you've only got one animal that you know is a head and you produce visuals from it, or if you've got, you know, one copy of an incomplete dominant gene and you know that the other animal doesn't have that and then all of a sudden you've got a super form coming out of it. So you see these things like that. Um, you know, the other kind of tip-off is reduced clutch viability eggs not making it to full term, um, and all of the offspring being females in the case of the boas and the pythons. 
And then and I was going to actually point this out. And LaVista asked, so if it was normal or normal, you'd have no way of knowing. So we really know Partho because of morphs, I would assume. That makes it so much easier to figure this out. Um, we know it We know it occurs widespread because of that, but that wasn't the case for the first um, instances. The first instances were recorded in captive situations where uh, females have been held in isolation for very long periods of time, you know, four, five, six, or longer years, and never been exposed to a male. Uh, in fact, I had a paper in, I don't know, maybe maybe 2011, um, where, uh, you know, we, we, we showed evidence of both long-term sperm storage and of parthenogenesis in pit vipers. And I then went back and reviewed all, a lot of the literature on sperm storage in snakes that have been published over the last 50 years or 60 years. And in most of the instances, they actually had the characteristics of parthenogenesis. And in many of them, they even mentioned this could be parthenogenesis, but we don't think so. And they, they go on to, to talk about um, sperm storage. And in fact, the longest record of sperm storage, I think, is 83 months. And it's in a file snake. And I record as file snake. And when you go back and read that paper, there was a single male offspring um, and a bunch of infertile ova, and it ties in perfectly to parthenogenesis. So that's not, even though that's commonly cited as the longest case of sperm storage in vertebrates. Um, I don't believe that. I think the longest is the six years so far for the uh, for the rattlesnakes. So it, it, there's no, I mean, I guess unless you do serious genetic testing, there's no way to tell if it's sperm storage, right? You're just assuming, oh, right. these two things bred, yeah. and it had a baby three years later. It's got to be sperm storage. Yeah, and, and, and the testing's not complex, you know, not for that kind of thing. Um, you know, while I don't, I still accept samples from species that we haven't, recorded parthenogenesis in before and it's not necessarily saying that I'm going to record parthenogenesis in them, we can use them for other things um, but <coughs> there are people like um, Ben Morrill with his company, I don't know if this company is still going it's doing a lot, of, or had been doing genetic testing like sex determination and so on they can do parentage studies in many of the snakes and, and they can tell you whether it's a, a male was involved or whether it's parthenogenesis and he can do it pretty cheap um, I just I just don't have the time for that anymore, you know, my, my lab is it, my lab doesn't work on parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis stuff is all my kind of hobby research that I do in the evenings or the weekends. Um, my lab is, is a totally different focus than that there, it's a, but I just do it for fun. So so you study parthenogenesis for fun. Yes. Travis fun. Bates yeah. all, for all of fun. My, all of my reptiles <laughs> is all for fun. So all the, the python phylogenetics that we do and all the sperm storage and all the <clears> – <throat> parthenogenesis work it's all just for fun i'm so glad there are people like all of you in the world warren also gets <laughs> to store snakes at work because they let them yes. store snakes at work yeah. well, this wall behind me is going to change this is going to be a floor to ceiling wall of emerald tree boas and corrales oh, i've been waiting five so months cool. for my cages to arrive and i'm still waiting i've got a shipping kind of uh, tracking number but they haven't been picked up yet so I'm, i've got a whole stack of of radiant heat panels and and Herbstat sixes, but they're not here yet. Oh, that's gonna be awesome! I lo- yeah. I want an emerald so bad. I don't ever yeah. want to hold it. I don't ever want to touch it. I just want to stare at it. Yeah, I got a whole bunch of them. Uh, the ones that I've got here are, are all the um, anaconda phase, so the green and black, you know, the black kind of ovals going down their back. Um, all the ones that I've got at home are just standard kind of northern emeralds. Well, they're two different groups. These ones are all wild caught. Yeah. Whereas the ones at home are all captive bred. So I just they'll never meet. 
Is there a <laughs> is there a definite attitude difference between the wild caught and the captive bred? No, they're all assholes. <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna put you on the stop on the spot, but it has been asked why you didn't order from Lone Star Reptile. <laughs> Because he doesn't make cages. Oh, there you go. There you go, Louisa. Yeah, these are all four foot by two foot by two foot and two foot uh, quartz uh, cubes that I'm getting. That's really cool. 14 of them arriving. That's going to be an awesome wall. All right, so I know that you posted questions on Facebook. I did, but I had something else to ask. I forgot it now that you. Well, look, pull it up on Facebook. It'll come back to you. I did. So I posted uh, just to get everybody's. Uh, questions they have about genetics. And so, and if anybody's in the chat, you can feel free. And if I've missed yours, please repost it. I'm pa- sorry, because LaVisa kept saying a lot of stuff and everybody's stuff. I you leave her alone. She was becoming educated. <laughs> and I actually am retaining some of the information that was mentioned tonight. We'll, Talk we'll to test me you tomorrow. again tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but right now, it's making sense. So the question was, uh, what reptile genetics concepts do you have the hardest time understanding? Um, all of them. Well, the answer the, is all what, of them. What I find funny about the reptile <laughs> hobby and genetics is that you took people that barely passed high school science, and now they're out there throwing out genetics terms and speaking genetics about ball pythons and this and that. And it's just it's weird because it's I'm not saying genetics is a hard concept to understand, but it's definitely one that takes a little bit of understanding of how it works. And I to think understand. I, I've talked to Travis about this before. I think my issue is that this is not part of my everyday life in the yeah. sense that I don't breed anything. This is 100% y'all. Like when you and Robert start talking about morphs, I'm just like, whoop, and it goes in one ear and out the other. And if Logan gets started talking about stuff, hmm. it all goes over my head. Like, And it's not that I don't understand it and I'm not intelligent enough to understand it. It's that my brain can only hold so much information and that's not something that my brain needs to retain. I think that's my problem. That's your only problem? Shut your face. (laughs) Boy. Oh, anyways. Fighting words. Uh, So I want to read some of these. And some of these, uh, I'm going to read what they wrote. And then I'm going to try and decipher what they asked. Uh, Angel said polygenics, uh, more specifically in Borneo short tail pythons. She understands that there are many genetics in play, but doesn't understand. That's how you can be, how it can be made consistent enough to produce morphs. So I don't know which one of y'all feel more comfortable with polygenics. I know that's it's different than just simple basic genetics like Mendeley. I mean, it's simple basic genetics, just compounded. Yeah. Polygenetics is that you have a bunch of different genes that are contributing to a look, and you know you can you can think of it like dogs. You know. A Labrador looks like a Labrador because there's a whole bunch of genes that have been selected to make it look like a lab. And a poodle looks like a poodle because you've selected for different genes that make it look like a poodle. They're still all dogs. And, you know, when you breed a lab and a poodle together, you kind of get that mixing and matching and shedding of some genes. You know, some of those genes from the poodle that are really dominant stay dominant in the cross some of the genes that are dominant from the lab stay dominant and then you just maintain that through selective breeding but it just takes more time to be able to select for a look that is more consistent because think of it like say five genes were involved in one of these traits um and think of those genes as just like light switches you can have those all in lots of different orders so you can breed animals to different animals and you get these all in different orders you're trying to get them all to be up or all to be down whatever right 
it just takes a lot of breedings to actually say, right, this one is up and that one's up and that one's up and that one's down. And I need to breed this to something else to try and get them all to the level that you want. So it just, it's just, it's just adding complexity to the breeding. And sadly, because you can't turn around and say, well, you know, this bit's a recessive and this bit's an incomplete dominant and so on. It makes it more difficult to then select animals that you then want to breed back to each other or back to a parent to then, um, hopefully make, generate less variation in that trait and therefore more consistency for a look. So it, it takes constant selection for it. I mean, if you're just doing it haphazardously, like Warren said, you know, if you've got those five switches and the trait you're looking for is four up and one down, if you just randomly take a baby out of there and you don't know if it's four up and one down and start breeding it, well, it may be a three up and two down. Yeah, it's a whole process of taking one baby because you I really like how this looks and that look may not be genetically what you're really going for. Right. You know, or it, you know, because it's getting influenced somewhere else. But once you've, you know, got those three up and two down and then you start bringing it to something else, well, you've lost that, that fourth one being up. So then to get it back, you either have to go back to the parent or loop back into a previous iteration. So you can, you can dilute yourself away from what you want by not maintaining that strict and tight select pressure. Well, I know Angel talked about Borneo short tails, but I, the easiest way I always think about it is like um, with crested geckos. Because uh, relatively, crested geckos are relatively new-ish to the hobby. I mean, they, they, they've been around for a little while, but they've really blown up. And almost everything except for like two traits in there are polygenetic. It's it's You're going for a look and you have no idea if that baby will come out looking that way. And then so many people are buying and breeding them to this to try to get a look. I think it's going to be a while before anybody can guarantee this is how it's going to come out because everybody's breeding so many different crested geckos together that, like you said, genetically, this baby may look the way you want. But when you breed it to this other one that looks the way you want, genetically doesn't match up. It's not It's not the same thing. And so crested geckos are, are a very weird thing to me when I see someone charging like $500 for a crested gecko and then you have no idea how the babies are going to look from that thing. So. Yeah, I... Uh... <clears throat> I've kept and I've bred short tails in the past, and I and I keep caramel um, Sumatran short tails, um, but you know they're consistent because it's a recessive trait. But with um, with the Borneo short tails and so on, I've got no idea. I, I look at these animals and I'm like, yeah, that looks great, but I've got no idea what a <laughs> unless it's a granite or a marble or an albino. I've got no idea. They all just look. You yeah, know, I like my simple recessive yeah. or incomplete dominant stuff. Yeah, crested geckos are the same for me. If it's not red or whatever other color, I'm like, I got no idea. <laughs> well, it's like, I know lily white is like the one thing I do know is a recessive trait, or at least a dominant. I know it, was a gen- uh, it falls into one of the lines of you can easily track what's going to happen. Whereas it's got a lily white, it's dominant, soft scale, or soft scale, or I can't remember what Capitan is calling it, is incomplete dominant, and then there's uh, an exanthic line that's recessive. I did see that on a video recently for Daytona. Someone showed that one that was recessive. But everything else yeah, is just, it feels like a crapshoot. Let's try to read. Oh, someone said Mike Wilbanks recently posted a video about controlling the amount of yellow and super fires using cinnamon and inchy. That was Darren Watson. Darren Watson said that. I guess <clears> the only problem is you start mixing other genes in. Like, I don't, if it's early on in the project, it's, I think it's probably pretty hard to tell what's actually doing it, right? Especially with ball pythons, because. Unless you have bred them. Well, I mean, it would, it would make sense with cinnamon and enchi in that regard because... I know enchi lightens stuff. One, they're allelic, and 
they're sort of over in the opposite direction. Cinnamon is a melanin increasing mutation. That's and, I I get lost on allelic ball python morphs. I don't know what August and it kind of goes. So, I don't know what that a word you just. I'll, said I'll, I'll tell you that we'll have in a second. Okay, I, I'll, I'll get I'll, I'll look back to that for you. But, but well, Lance Kirkman said uh, the one thing he was wondering about genetics is why everyone is an expert in allelics, which. Uh, I'm assuming it has something to do with alleles. <coughs> do you know what an allele is? Uh, once upon a time, I did. <laughs> I've heard you mention it before. <laughs> okay, I'll let don't the, ask me stuff like that on the spot. What's wrong with you? I'll let I'll let the geneticist explain allelic because again, <laughs> with, there's a lot of allelic stuff in ball pythons. I'm using I'm using my context clue. Are you grading papers? It's a very strong possibility. This is a judgment-free zone, Warren. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually used all of you guys in my class the other day as an example because we were we're I'm teaching context clues to third graders right now, and I was telling them I'm like, guys, what do you do when you read something and you don't know what to do? And they were like, well, that never happens to you. I'm like, that happens to me all the time when I read stuff about science, and then I have to use my context clues to figure it out or I have to go ask some friends. <laughs> and, like, and they thought that was so funny that I could admit that I don't always know everything. <laughs> Not about you though. I know everything about you, James. So don't don't think That's that applies think. to you. <laughs> All right. So so Travis, if you want to circle back to allelics so we can I have a feeling it has to do with alleles. Am I right? Yes, but yes, you don't even know what an allele is. is. But I'm I'm an allele is just a different form of a gene. Um, an easy way to think of it is like uh, suits in a deck of cards. You know, you've got spade, you've got heart, you've got club, you've got diamond. Okay. You know, if I've got the ace of spades, that's the main gene, and then I have the ace of hearts, the ace of diamonds, and the ace of clubs. Those would be alleles. So they're different forms, but they're still all the ace. Gotcha. I could have told you had to do with genetics. And then in ball pythons, you have snakes that when bred together... Give you white snakes and everybody goes crazy for it. I know that. I like, like the black well, snakes. Yes, and that's the super fires. But with, you know, Wilbank saying that he can use uh, cinnamon and enchi to affect the amount of yellow, you know, like I said, that makes sense because cinnamon tends to damp the yellow down and increase the melanin factor. So that would reduce the yellow that you would be producing. And then enchi does the opposite tends to damp down some of the melanin and bump up the yellow pigmentation of the xanthans. So that would then increase the yellow background. And John Grant, I have no idea why he's a pansy. I'm not. Anyways. <laughs> no, John Grant just doesn't mind getting bit. I'm smarter and choose not to get bit when I keep from getting bit. That's not a pansy. That's just knowing Wouldn't that hold a scorpion. I don't want to get bit. No, not holding a scorpion. They sting you. Anyways, next. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dominic said... Why everyone keeps using the term co-dominant, especially when they know it's incomplete dominant. Because they're Muppets. I'm going to have to agree with Warren on that one. <laughs> so, you kind of around and, yeah. Can Muppet. I ask where you're from, Warren? We already had that question. Uh, Belfast, <laughs> Northern Ireland. Belfast. You went downstairs to get books. He's from Ireland. Okay. The northern part. Uh, the northern was that, but that wasn't what we were recording. It's its whole old country. I know. Yeah. I know. Hey, everyone at this table, one of us has lived in Europe. You were five. Two of us, kind of. I've been there twice as an adult. Jim lived there. You were five. Still lived there, and I had to wear a stupid little uniform to go to school. 
and it was foggy. I remember that much. Where was it? Where were you? England. I couldn't tell you where in England. His parents were in the military. But he's an expert on it. I am. James thinks he's an expert on everything. I, I tell my kids that all the time. I'm the most important person in the room in this classroom. Oh, my God. Make sure they know it, too. Oh, uh, anyways. <laughs> but, yeah, no, the, the term Kodama goes back to, again, I tell you, everybody that barely passed high school science is now a genetics <laughs> expert with their corn snakes and ball pythons. And that term got used 20, 30-something years ago, and everybody's like, yeah, let's keep going with that. Well, where the problem lies very simply in the fact that you have a bunch of people that are YouTube influencers, and they use the term incorrectly. And yeah. if they started using the term correctly, you're going to see a complete change in how people talk about it. Uh, the fact that you've got <clears> big players <throat> that are still calling things co-dominant, and they might just wash it over them. You know, like, you know, it's just they don't see a problem in it, but it's totally incorrect. Yeah, you know? I can. That verify that they don't see a problem with it because I've heard at least three of them say, I know I'm using the wrong term, but I don't care. It's what I've always used. And you know, my answer to that is, well, you should care. Yeah, if you turn around to them and if you turn around to them and they've got their line of whatever morph and you call it a, a whatever, like the, the standard morph that's about, they'd have a shit fit. Yeah. You know, it's the exact same thing. You know, they're, they're too ignorant to be able to turn around and say, you know what? No, actually, I am wrong and maybe I need to change and that will help educate because they all go on about their YouTube channels being for education, and in that case, they're not educating. So, yeah. And I, and I, I definitely called hypoboas for the longest time co-dominant. I don't anymore, but I mean, that's what they were called for forever when I got in the hobby. And then, uh, and then I really looked at, looked at it. I was like, well, that's not how that works. That's not the, that's not co-dominant. And in fact, the paper that showed that was written by Gordon Shewitt, who I mentioned earlier on. A really good friend of mine, he and uh, Rich <laughs> Eiley, who had salmonboa.com. Oh, yeah. Um, so they, through hundreds of breedings, showed that it was an incomplete dominant, right? And I think maybe, Travis, we've talked about before, there's like no co-dominant traits in snakes, right? There's not that we're aware no of. proven co-dominant traits. Yeah, so it's just, it's just lingo that's hung around and they refuse to change. And what's also interesting is you see... Uh, in boas and pythons, there are a lot of incomplete dominant traits, but in corn snakes, there are very few incomplete dominant traits. Really? That's yeah. true. I think about it. Yeah, it's all. It's, it's like that with most colubrids. There are yeah. Yeah. dominant traits in colubrids. Yeah. And that's just got to be, a, I assume, a, uh, a branch in the evolutionary tree. They branched off at a certain point, and whatever branched off didn't have those traits. Um. John Grant says hypo and motley are allelic and boas. I did not know that. And I actually have hypos. But I did not know they were allelic. That's why you can't get a super hypo motley or a hypo super motley. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Now that I think about it, like, I've never seen that. That does make sense. <laughs> um, Brandon Millichamp said the one thing. Uh, he said morphs, morphs. Maybe it's because he's not a morph hunter. People tell me morphs. Um, and he's like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. More so tricky. I, I think it's a little easier now. The internet has made something. One thing easier is that at least we're all calling certain things the same thing. I remember getting into the hobby in the early 2000s, and ball pythons were horrible about this. You would have uh, like the same thing on the East Coast and the same thing on the West Coast called two completely different things because two people bred them, and they wanted to have their own thing. And I think that's why the internet has made that a little bit better, I hope. But 
morphs are tricky. I don't, how do y'all feel? I know you've got, uh, Warren, you've got the, the emeralds and all. Are you big into, you're not really big into morphs. You, I've seen some of the boas and stuff you do. That's not really morph stuff, more locale stuff, right? Yeah, no, I got, yeah, I got a lot of localities, but I got a lot of locality morphs. I, I've got maybe 70 or 80 boas and they're all, there are very few that are actually wild type. Most of them are <clears throat> forms of albino, anathristic, motley, inca. Yeah, most of my stuff is are actually morphs. And in fact, my all of my Amazon tree boas are all morphs. Um, all of my children's pythons are morphs. What else have we got? My blood python, my short tails are morphs. I, I got a lot. They're just variants of a wild form. So if they are um, something that that deviates from the wild form that is under genetic control, so a some level of heritable trait is what we should define a morph as. <clears throat> Travis, you do morphs on the ball python side, right? Everything else you don't really you got the kukris. There's no morphs in kukris. Yeah, the though. kukri, but that was I mean, I wasn't specifically breeding for the morph. I was curious as to what it could do. But, you know, there's still some work to be done with it to figure out completely what it is, but at this point in time I can say that it's at the very least a simple bomb that tree. Those little snakes are weird. Yes, they are. <laughs> little <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> That's another one. Like, I, I, I don't want to handle because I don't want to get bit because they've got those fucked up teeth that will just stab you. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, that's not my. That's not my thing. Uh, I'm assuming that's Darren that asked that question. Uh, yep. Darren says uh, so. We're often taught that pythons lay eggs and boas give live birth, but that isn't true across the board. Uh, if that's the case, then what truly separates them? I don't know if either one of y'all. Uh, what What is a true difference between a Boa and a python. Do you want to handle that one before? I don't know, about 50 million years. <laughs> I'd imagine it's the branch at which they split off. But. Yeah, they branched. Yeah, they, they, they did. They deviated quite a long time ago. Um, they, you know, there's lots of different things that they share common traits like, you know, thermal pits, but then we see thermal pits and pit fibers to a different extent. Um, you know, we commonly divide them based on egg laying or live bearing, but we also see kind of the the switching occurring in some of the pythons will produce live babies, some of the boas will produce eggs. Yeah. So it's just a they're just different branches of the evolutionary tree of snakes. To me, the weirdest branch is Madagascar. Because you've got it's really weird. You've got all these boas in the Americas. You've got these sand boas in parts of Africa, and then it really just seems like pythons from africa over to australia except for this one weird ass pocket on an island that has boas yeah it's weird but the other thing that's weird about them is that um you know we've shown that um boas and pythons have xy xx xy sex chromosomes dumarils boas um and we believe um madagascan ground boas and very likely sanzinia have zw sex chromosomes just like the advanced snakes so they're there. But boas and pythons, they evolved XY sex chromosomes independently of each other. Um, and we don't know what happens further down the kind of phylogeny of snakes. So boas and pythons are weird. Madagascar is weird in terms of the animals that are on it. Have you looked at Kendoya in that grouping as well? No, but we're about the, to. So the Dumerils and the Kendoya seem to be fairly close to each other. I've got, I've got parthenogenetic Kendoya arriving with me soon. Um, they are, well, in vials of ethanol. Um, but yeah, I, I think 
they're another one that would be really interesting. We're about to do a big study revising the phylogeny potentially of Candoia. Um, so um, once COVID's over and we can start to, to do trips like to, to Fiji and stuff to sample. I can definitely but, see where those are related. Like, if you look at the head structure of some of the Candoia and you look at the head of a Dumeril, because the head of a Dumeril is, it is boa-like, but at the same time, it's not. It's got that very like angular nose and it looks very similar to some of the Candoia. Yeah, and, and the and the, bow, the Madagascan ground bows are the same. But then you look at Sanzinia, and I, I've got green Sanzinia here, and those things are just insane. I yeah, want those so bad. Yeah, those, a lot of people do. <laughs> those things are – we, we really got hosed here because I've heard before, like you go to Europe, and they have green Sanzinia every fucking way, and they don't have the uh, Mandarin ones. And then yeah, here, they do. They got both of them. Do they? Yeah. They yeah, got both. I don't, I don't, are common. People seem to be more successful at breeding greens in, in, the, in Europe, but you got both of them. They're just so awesome. When I worked at a, when I worked at the zoo, I had an opportunity. I got the list of like reptiles that you could uh, get from other zoos, and there were two Sanzinia on there. I had nowhere in the zoo for them to go on display, but mm-hmm. I told my boss, I was like, "Yeah, we need those." Yeah. And we got two Sanzinia, and, and everybody's like, "Why do we get these?" And I was like, "Because I wanted to play with them." They're great. And the weird, the, the weird thing is that they're the they're the snakes that I look at least in in all of my animals. I uh, I feed them, kind of ignore them. Why? I don't know. I love them. <laughs> well, I didn't know if there was like a reason. Like, did because they do, turn to stone if he looks at them? Better if you leave them alone. Like, I mean, James had a snake that wouldn't eat if like the light was on in the room. So I mean, no, they're really hardy. They do, they do really well. Now they just maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe once I move them into the new cages, then I'll be a different story. But they uh. But I hear they're misleading. I hear they're not overly, and I, and I kind of had experience that they weren't overly arboreal, even though they're a big green snake. That, but they're not like emeralds or green trees. No, where they not like emeralds, but, but you provide a lot of branches, and they will use them. But they don't. I never had them. Like they definitely they didn't do the perch. Yeah, the, no, they won't do that there now. Which is a shame because they have that awesome looking head that if they would just perch like an emerald would be amazing. Yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, like mine tend to just like kind of sit in some kind of ball. Yeah, in the corner, like arboreally, but. It just kind of looks like a mess, and the head's buried right in the middle of it. Yeah, it's a yeah. tree ball python. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're neat because they also do that ontogenic color change. Yes. So the green start off red or orange, and then they'll change over the space of a couple of years. Just, you know, they're certainly slower to change than emeralds, but they're they're really cool. Yeah, I do like them. I think they're, they're awesome. So. Yeah, I, I've I've always loved the boas of on, on uh, Madagascar, and I, I Thanks to Travis, I have a Doomerals again, which cool. she is awesome looking. She's beautiful. Um, and thanks to, thanks, thanks to Travis, Robert now has 1,700 Doomerals. Yeah, because my wife fell in love with the one when it was in my house, and now we have one, two, three, six, seven, four, five, six, seven, seven. One more. They had none when you sent me that Doomerals, <laughs> and now they have seven adults. That first one that y'all got, though, was or is the massive absolutely one? she's huge she's like, she's like eight foot it's an eight foot numerals yeah, she shed yeah. like they, they were just big babies they, you know they, they were expensive in the UK whenever I live in, in Northern Ireland um, and they went out of fashion a little bit because um, we treat CITES animals differently in the UK and Europe so CITES mm-hmm. one animal like a numerals uh, once they're born you have to get them microchipped uh-huh. and you have to get a basically a permit for each animal and an ID from the government for each animal that costs money. So people just, they went out of fashion because people are out of, out of kind of the spotlight because people were just sick of having to do that there. See, I think more has killed them here because I remember when I was younger, they were cheap, like 125 bucks. And now they're, 
like seven hundred dollars. Ah, they came down again. I saw they them for like seventy-five and three hundred this year, but you know that's just COVID. Day. That's COVID prices. Everything went up because of COVID. You know, so just, you don't um, see them as much. And for me, cycle right. So if people aren't breeding them, then they'll become expensive. And then what's happened now? A bunch of people bought them and they'll breed them and they'll they'll cycle down again. Yeah. Just like you see with Mexican black king snakes, just like you see with Indian rainbow boas, you know they all cycle. So, uh, I think the gestation on those guys also throws a lot of people off, just because they hold on to those babies forever. Compared yeah, to like, compared to like a red tail, where your huh? rainbow does the same thing. What what is a gestation? Doomerel uh, rainbows are like 117 days. So I yeah, my, my rainbows like went like that. six months. I think doomerels go like eight. I think it's yeah. like eight months. Oh, they go eight months. Really? Yeah. It's a long, long gestation. Yeah, it's a long one. I know that Brazilian rainbows are like 117 days post ovulation shed because I've got one due to give birth next month. Yeah, mine took um, forever. That's and because the, you're uh, impatient. Corallus or, or Corallus tree boas, they're, they're, they've got a relatively long gestation as well. I've never looked into Dumerals. I've never owned them, so I've never. I can see where it would really throw off somebody who is used to breeding like uh, corns or balls, something where like in three months you have babies from birth, from, you know, from breeding to hatching and if you're yeah, like eight was, months but yeah if you think about it with ball patterns and stuff they're still you know they breed and they ovulate and about 28 days later they they shed after sorry after ovulation they shed about two weeks later then about 28 days later they lay eggs and then 60 days later they hatch so you're looking at three and a half months right yeah but um, the same once they ovulate most like boa imperator once they ovulate they shed normally about two weeks later, and then a hundred. My bulls between ninety and one hundred and four days. Yeah, most of the Central American bulls oh. that I have give birth closer to the day ninety to day nine, day ninety five. I did the same thing John Green did. I went and looked on Google, and uh, according to an article in Reptiles Magazine, they can go up to nine months of gestation. Yeah, I don't believe that. Numerals. Yeah, I, the reason I don't believe that is that um, it's it's often from records where people mis misidentified a pre ovulation swell. Boas will undergo pre-ovulation swells that people think are ovulation swells, uh, and they can they can go up, and you think that they're 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 ovulating, they can shed, and therefore people can't there. But it's actually a pre-ovulation shed, and that can occur months before an ovulation swell, um, and it can vary in intensity depending on whether one ovary or both ovaries are ovulating. Yeah, and then you know, looking at some other articles, it's five months, four months. Yeah. There's there's no consensus at all. Yeah, most of the most of the boas are like 100, 100 to one hundred and fifty days, kind of thing, one hundred and forty days. Yeah, I think, I think my Colombians run somewhere between one hundred and five to one hundred and ten, somewhere in there. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, my rainbows are the longest. My rainbows seem to take about six months. Is what my female is every time she's given birth, and mm-hmm. it's six long, long months. Yeah, I've got one that I um, I paired them, and uh, I didn't pay attention to them and then I went on vacation for three weeks or nearly four weeks and I came back and there was a, a shed in the in the enclosure and the female was starting to swell I thought all right well there you go she had a she ovulated and she shed while I was away so I'm kind of counting up roughly somewhere she that was mid-June so I'm expecting what July August September sometime in October I've caught the swell once in my boa. And it looks like they swallow a football. If you catch it at the right time, I mean, they are. They do. It's big. Yeah. It's Especially big. if boas aren't obese. If they're, you know, normally fed, then they, the ovulations are really noticeable. Yeah. 
because yeah, the, the ovulation will be both it'll be both vertical and horizontal, right? So they'll swell at the side, and then it'll go top bottom as well. So they'll really so have just that. like in women. I do have two children, and I never noticed my wife ovulating like that. So <laughs> <laughs> you just got to pay more attention. Gosh. Well, there won't be a third child, so we'll never get to see it again. <laughs> You'll have Same a, here. First case apart, though. Just watch oh, that. Oh, God. No, that doesn't happen in mammals. Don't worry. <laughs> it can't happen in mammals. So. Um, Goodness. Going back to the question, I like this one. Jason miller says, why in the majority of groups I continue to see more, people post normals and then ask what morph it is? That's, that's just everybody's hoping they can make money. Yeah, that's stupidity so and people fresh in the, in the hobby. Which makes me feel bad because I have what was given to me by a friend, a normal ball python. And I look at it and I'm like, it doesn't fucking look normal. But I don't want to post it and be like, hey, what is this? Because it doesn't that's look normal. That's because you're not used to looking at what a normal ball python looks like. That's probably that's true. That is right. true. You know, and there's a lot of variation in normal ball pythons. Yeah, I, I just had to post a picture on the, uh, the morph market community forum. This guy's like, I know this isn't a normal. It just it looks darker than no, any normal normal looks. And I posted up a picture of two normals, and one of them is, you know, darkest pitch, and the other one's just bright gold. And I was like, these aren't even extreme examples. And your animal falls right between them, so it's a normal. <laughs> I like way to crush those dreams. I, I like Victor's oh, answer. He still it's, a, believe. it's a super normal. <laughs> but at that point, it's just it's just worth educating people. At that point, you know, these are new people generally in the hobby, and they're they're. Everybody talks about morphs. You go into morph market, and it's all about morphs, you know. Well, um, and you talk about the YouTube guys, and 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 I and I, some of them I like. I, I like Kabilka, but I mean, it's very. He's definitely a morph driven thing, and so people see that and they go, "Well, I want to do that." So, what my twenty dollars snake that I picked up off Craigslist must be worth five thousand dollars, and I just got a really good deal. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it does happen. There are times when people, you know. Bought animals that were imported, not not as much nowadays, but certainly years ago, people would get animals in that, that actually were morphs. You know, not not um, you know obviously albinos and stuff, but exanthics would come in like that. Um, a lot of these kind of Mojave type or black pastel type animals would, would would slip through the the cracks. Orange Dream stuff would slip through the cracks. GHI almost slipped through the crack. You know, so they just came in as just normal-ish looking ball pythons. What happened was. Um, when people started to really get their head around these different traits or different morphs, they started to look for things that were slightly unusual. And I don't believe, really believe it happens that much anymore. I don't think many people are really going for those kind of really, you know, what, what did Ralph Davis call them? Like Dinker projects? Dinkers, yeah, right? Well, I wonder how often anybody's actually going down to Florida, opening up a giant crate of ball pythons and picking through them to find the one that looks different anymore versus how they were doing it in the 90s yeah. and early 2000s. Yeah. Well, the difference is also now in Africa, they have the internet and those things are, are pulled out long before they get here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is the, the guys out in Africa know all this stuff too, so they, they pick all those ones out before they even get here. Yeah. So anything that's getting through now is something that's just so stupidly subtle as to basically be, you know, not really that much different than a basic normal. <clears throat> so and then more. they all go to the wholesalers and the wholesalers, you know, sell their fancy <laughs> ball pythons, fancy ball which pythons. are just $400 and $500 normals that probably aren't going to prove out. They're fancy ball python that they rescued from the pet store. <laughs> they rescued it when they paid them all the money for right. it. Right. That, now that's where the question should be. You know, what exactly is a rescue when you pay for it? You know, 
Like, is it, I feel like, is there a dollar amount or is any paying for it not a rescue? Right. Um, the only way you rescue from a pet store is if you go in and you're like, look, that animal was dying. You need to give it to me so that it does not die. And they give it to you and don't make any money off of it. And that just doesn't happen. Because no. Yeah, they're about to euthanize it, cut its head off. That's whenever you sweep in and take it. That's a rescue. <laughs> Everything else is you're just buying from a shop. Yep. Hey, 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 don't break. Those people rescued their poor danger noodle snoot babies. What? No. <laughs> and then they put hats on them. Uh, Emily asked, she doesn't understand how two brown snakes make white snakes. She says, like, I get, I get it, but like, what in genetics decided, hey, instead of making the pattern and color cleaner, we're just going to make it white? I know the answer to this one, but I'll glad that one of y'all tried to answer that one. Go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, <laughs> You're about to get sued. No, I'm not. <laughs> that is purely randomness. That is genetics. That's randomness. A white snake is random. I don't know. I don't know. Dr. Boots' face no. tells me that's not randomness. It is It is a random I'm mutation. This. <laughs> but obviously, a white snake is not something you find in the wild on a regular basis because that is detrimental to survival. But she's not talking about in the wild. She's talking about... But that's they all, all mutations come from the wild. She's asking what, it's, what is the cause of what, it. It's a... Mutation in the pigment deposition or distribution of that animal. I'm still not so wrong. It's showing the way, up. The way still the random. pigment is either sent out into the body or the way the pigment is supposed to stick to the body and just doesn't. And we've talked multiple times on here that white snakes are retarded. No, they're not. <laughs> well, we talk about so. You've talked about before, we talked about like the eye formation and boas, because I, I see, I saw someone post the other day, they posted a, a, a little albino boa, and they go, it's got a small little birth defect on its nose. I was like, it also has bulging eyes. I don't know how you didn't notice that part. the birth defect in the nose is not a birth defect. It's nose rub. Yeah. And they're trying to say it was a birth defect. It's just, yeah. The eyes are an issue. They, they were commonly an issue in albino boas, very likely through inbreeding. Well, that's why I always hated those. And I've said it before. I hate those. Uh, you don't see them anymore, but the bug-eyed leucistic rat snakes. That was a huge thing. Like in the mid-2000s, people would breed them and then sell them as like, look at this thing. It's got awesome bug eyes. I'm like, that's not how it's supposed to look, damn it. Yeah, they did fine. You know, yeah. Again, that wasn't a detrimental mutation for them. But but you kept, they kept breeding them. Like you'd see people breed for them. Uh, I saw one guy with palmettos. Uh, palmetto corns will do that too every now and then. And we talked about Travis. You said. I was, Will. Well, that's what we said. Almost all the leucistics. Will, de- will generate a bug-eyed phenotype. And mm-hmm. you can probably push one way or the other for it, but you can never really eliminate it because it is part and parcel with that trait. It's because of the way melanin is instrumental in the formation of the eye cups as well. So when you're disrupting the formation of the eye cup, sometimes it's just going to go wrong and the eyes are going <clears> to <throat> bulge out of the head. And I'm still... so. I told you, I had that one super sun glow boa that had bug eyes and they've, they've gone down and, and I was for a couple of years now, I've been like, I'm not going to breed it. But now every time I look at it, I'm like, that's really pretty. And I want to, you're part of the problem. I'm not going to breed it, Warren. Can wait, it's can just we just really say pretty. that one more time? Can we have that on loop? Part of the problem. <laughs> I haven't bred it yet. It's just living <laughs> in a tub. That could have been one of your. I need the button. I need that phrase on the button. Part, part of the problem. But only with Warren. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said it before, and everybody says it. The worst thing that happens whenever we breed snakes is we always produce one that is just about hanging on to life, and it's got an odd pattern or an odd color, and we do everything that we can to save that. Um, whereas in nature, that thing would be gone within 
you know, a very short period of time and that, that would never be selected for. We also don't select for necessarily animals that feed well and so on. And we, we don't, many people don't cull animals. The reason I have king snakes is that every year I produce animals that have got slight birth defects and so on. And nine times out of 10, they go into the king snakes. Yeah, I uh, make friends, and later on, one of them's missing. It must have escaped. <laughs> Always the little deformed. Is that what you tell your little ones? Yes. No, my kids are all. They know all about the shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I, I don't know where Warren thinks. Warren's like, watch this thing eat this other really one. Happening there. <laughs> Children of a of a biologist, they know about death. They know about everything. Oh yeah, I know. I, I mean, we had to have conversations with ours when she went into pre K, explaining other people don't want to know how snakes have babies. Because, and we, like, I had to talk to her teacher in a conference to explain, we have snakes at home that just had babies. If she's really excited, we've already talked about not talking about this amongst our friends because their parents might not want them to know how it works yet. Like, you know, now you throw people in the mix and she's 10 and she's still like, what? But yeah. My kids have seen all of that. They've seen, whenever I used to keep ball pythons, they've, they've seen eggs hatching. They've seen boas give birth a lot. Oh, yes. The whole freaking neighborhood knows when we have snakes being born at this house because someone is so loud and excited. Yeah. I had snakes born the other day, and I did not scream about it. Thank you very much. Well, but I also had negative have? stuff happen at the same time. Yeah. What was born? What did you have? I had some samboas that I had a female that I thought she wouldn't do for another month or two. And then mm-hmm. I opened it up. There were four little babies, and there were a ton of infertile ovums. It was her first clutch. Um, but Don't was, see. Well, here's, here's the other thing. Because it was their first clutch does not mean it's going to be their worst clutch. Yeah. Um, that's a common misconception. I'm telling myself that's Evolutionarily, that's the worst thing that could he's ever happen. Because the female to... might not survive to the next time they reproduce. If you look in the wild, most snakes breed on a two- or three-year cycle. So that's a long time to wait before they're going to get a chance to reproduce again. So they're going to do everything they can to produce um, uh, healthy offspring. And in fact, all of the work that my collaborators done on copperheads bringing in dozens of gravid females they rarely if ever produce slugs and the only times that we find them producing slugs really in any in any kind of number is whenever they are producing parthen genetically so and they'll have like one or two babies and a bunch of slugs but this this kind of notion that in captivity the first breeding is not going to be great you're going to get a high number of slugs or deformed or whatever that's not the case that's Either the female, that's the female wasn't ready for breeding. I was like, do you think that's the case or, if it's a young female? Cases, the male wasn't, you know, so they weren't cool enough for, for sperm development. Or they were separated before because boas are not good at storing sperm, unlike pythons and, and, and rattlesnakes. So you take them out too soon, or the male didn't breed the female close enough to ovulation, then you get issues. And see, this female, I... Uh... <laughs> So I, I bred her to two males, or at least tried. And I think I'm pretty sure I know the male was just my straight annery. Because I got four babies. They're all annery. Um, and the other one I bred to was a, was a albino head annery. But she, I'm pretty sure she ripped one of his hemipenes off. Uh, and cause when, I remember when remember, this happened. Yeah, because when I opened the tub, she's got blood down her back. And he's got blood at his vent. And all I can think was, I really hope the other one still works. Uh, just, uh, just probe it. You'll know when you probe it. But... It's not uncommon with boas and with pythons to see blood in a cage whenever they're breeding. Really? Yeah. Uh, that was my first time. Although she's also solid white, so it's very easy to see mm-hmm. when there's blood on them. But, uh, yeah, they're cool. I, I like sand boas a lot. I've thought about getting them many times. I, I love I, them. I just, I just don't need any more snakes. 
I love that you're like, I like Good Sam. for you for being no. able to admit that and stick uh, I, to that. I, I I'm not sticking to it. I didn't say I stick. I'm sticking to it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking up seven from the airport tomorrow. Jesus. <laughs> I was helping Logan feed Colubrids last night, and right. our snicker needs some attention. And I walked out, and I walked in the bedroom, looked at Rachel. I said, nothing is coming home from the show this weekend. <laughs> there are 15 corn snakes being shipped to me next Tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Are they leaving tomorrow and coming in Thursday? Leaving tomorrow, coming in. Going to the same place? Yeah. I have to go to the exact same hub on Thursday. Oh, oh right. y'all could ride together. We're coming from different directions. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> I, I say that every time I go to Arlington, I'm like, nothing's coming home. And the last couple of times I've been good. I, yeah. I love how there's a pause there. Like. <laughs> I just... I, I love that Warren's got snakes that everybody because he's got the Sanzinia that everybody loves. He's got emeralds and all this cool stuff, and then he's also like, I like sand boas. You don't tend to because I always get shit for liking sand boas by people that have quote unquote. Cool Nobody's going to give Warren Booth shit, James. Come on, fuck that. No, you are did. not Warren well, Booth. Warren well, <laughs> 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 doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not in any of those groups on Facebook. That's that's how I. What the hell does like, Warren know, Arthur? Oh gosh, so, yeah. Is, are we? Are, did we make it through our Facebook questions? Yes. Did you have more questions? No, I just have oh, my okay. books. I want to talk about. Well, so, go ahead. I got. I got something that I'll add to that after your book. So I always proofread. I will proofread is not the right word. I always pre-read whatever reptile books that I bring into my classroom because I don't want my kids reading something that is garbage. Um, and Which so there's a lot of it out there. There is so much garbage out there on, on reptile books. But so my, the third book that I wanted to talk about is actually must still be in the car because I couldn't find it. But these fun fact file animal adaptation books are really awesome. It's 20 fun facts about amphibian adaptations and 20 fun facts about reptile adaptations because my class pets are coming to my classroom soon and we I don't just take them up there they have to figure out what's coming and they get clues all week and there's books about the animals they have to read about before they come in um, and so that's fun but the one that I really liked it's part of the Magic Treehouse series. So my a couple, loves those. Yeah, yeah. So the Magic Treehouse books are great. I've read the whole series. There's a bajillion of them out there. But something they just started doing recently was the Fact Finder books like that go along guide. with. It's a companion oh. guide. Mm-hmm. So basically like the one on um, A Crazy Day with Cobras. Um, there's a companion guide that goes along with that book. So whereas that book is completely fictional, the companion guide is completely nonfiction and it breaks it down beautifully. Um, and I actually read it in the car this weekend while we were running errands around town. Um, and so I would make James like pause what he was listening to so I could tell him stuff that I read in the book. And but he, tell me things I already knew. I mean, I thought it was very interesting. So you had to hear them also. That's how this works in a marriage. Um, since when? <laughs> since I said so. <laughs> so, but is there, like, if you haven't checked them out and you have kids, I highly recommend that you check these, these books out because Again, they're they're the fact finder books or companion guides to the Magic Treehouse, and they work. I mean, they're they're wonderfully written. They cover a lot of information. This one was all about reptiles, and so it talks. It starts out talking about dinosaurs. It left some stuff a little vague for me, um, just because I I feel like 
it could have clarified it a little bit better. But then it breaks it down into like there's a whole chapter on snakes and then the snakes gets broken down into more specific species, venomous versus non-venomous. They use venomous venomous versus non-venomous. And then it talks about lizards and then it talks about turtles and tortoises and the difference between the two. And so it's, it was just, it was really great. And it's not often that I come across reptile books for kids that I really enjoy. Um, And this week I just happened to find multiples, which was cool. That was really all I had. <laughs> so You're looking at me like, okay, no, what's next? <laughs> no, my one, my book related thing actually came from Morelia Python radio. Um, I didn't listen. They have a new episode out. It's a, uh, it's about books. I didn't get a chance to listen to all of it. But last week, it may, well, actually, I think it was on the episode where they talked about blackheads. Uh, they mentioned an app for cataloging your books. You scan a barcode or you can manually put it in. It's called um, Book Buddy. And I've got all these books back here, and I'm always wondering when I go to a bookstore, I'm trying to remember, do I have that book or do I not have that book? So I'm definitely going to go through with this app on BookBuddy and scan every book. So if anybody has a reptile library and you're trying to remember what you have and don't have, there's apps where you can just scan it in, you can pull it up and go, okay, I have that book. I don't have to buy it for the third time, which for some of these cases, I've, I've definitely bought them for like the third or fourth time because I forgot I had them. But I feel like Warren's looking at his five million reptile books up there. I think, yeah. Trying to think of like what books I really like. <laughs> I did some of them here at my office at home as well. But. I uh, also I was listening to them talk about books. They were talking about books that were expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the I'm holding the Pythons of the World Volume One Australia, which my like mother-in-law bought. <laughs> eh, it's in your hand right there. Yeah, which my mother-in-law <laughs> your bought. Your copy's probably better. What do you mean, kit better? His it looks like it's hardback hard and it has a dust cover. Yours came from a flea market. And mine was free. Mine was cheap. His was Tracy Parker gave it to me. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> along with the ball one and along with the other one. The, the I've, got, I've got one of them up there. I have the other one. Where's the other? I would like to apologize in advance. It got warm in the podcast room and I opened the door. So now our dog is in here. I'm being attacked by She it. loves Robert. <laughs> She's just looking at me like this. She gets so excited when Robert comes over. <laughs> yeah, I have pythons of Asia and... Malaya, Archipelago, whatever it is. That's uh, a good one. Uh, but the it was funny the thing about the volume one, which I got from my mother-in-law from a thrift shop. If you go on Amazon, it's like $600 on Amazon. And I'm like, that thing's just sitting on my shelf in my snake room. I, now, I, do I think it's a $600 book? No. And I don't think anybody's going to pay $600 for that book. What's but, really cool is I actually have the um, a set of proofs from that book as well. And, and I've got a cool picture from it. Dave Barker gave them to me. Um Six weeks ago, uh, we were hanging out in New Mexico at Bob Ashley's place, and Dave gave me the set. And they're they're really cool. They're the original, oh, cool. all the all the images, all the you know, that you can frame. They're kind of cool. So you've got you're in a new book that is coming out. You're uh, you have a part in the complete uh, Carpet Python book. Yeah, so we're working on that. I've done I've written stuff for the complete the more complete boa constrictor from Vin Russo. I wrote a part for that. Um. And then I'm I'm working on two books myself, but with collaborators that will be part of the the complete series. So let me ask you: you you've written a lot of uh, papers as far as like uh, for your job and all that that are in depth with your job. What are you more? I don't say proud of, but what do you enjoy more? That or getting to write a section on parthenogenesis for the carpet python book or for something right. for the boa book. Again, that's just kind of hobby stuff, you know, so that's fun to write and it's, it helps out friends. Yeah. 
whenever Nick called me up and asked if I could do stuff on that, I was, I was more than happy to do it. So he's he's got. I've already given him sections on parthenogenesis and androgenesis, and I'm working on some additional sequencing for the phylogenetics kind of chapter. Um, so they're fun, you know. They, they they take time, they cost money, but you know, I, I I've done that stuff for free. You know, it's nice, just nice to get a free copy of the book. You know, I've got to buy that book because the original you can't buy the original one. Yeah, I've got it here as well somewhere. I forget how much it is, but it's like if you try to buy it now, yeah, it's yeah, insane. It, Which it, one it is this again? People, you know, it's just they, this prices go a little bit crazy for Which a book is this? complete carpet python. Oh yeah, that yeah. one's going for about four hundred dollars. Oh, you looked it up? Yeah, I randomly check for it to see uh, if I can ever find a used copy that I can buy for you. If you look on kingsnake.com, you'll see it pop up there every now and again for about sixty bucks. I'll I'll add that to my. I, been, I literally searched. For I haven't been on like kingsnake.com in probably like ten years. It's still good. I still watch. I still look at it every day. Is it still exactly the same as it did twenty years ago? Yes. But yeah, there's just no forum stuff anymore. Really, I don't know if there are. I just I don't really go into forums and stuff anymore. I, I try and stay away from all that stuff. But animals still pop up. In fact, some of my emeralds that I've got here, I, I got off Kingsnake.com. Really, I need to go. I never looked at animals on there. I never think to go look at them. I mean, that's, that's the only reason I use it. That used to be the only place before Morph Market and all that. I'd always go with Kingsnake or Fauna Classifies, which felt more like the Craigslist of reptiles. And I still use that. And I, I bought animals from that as well. It just always yeah. felt shady. No, I, I don't think so. I think it's just, it's just not a, an updated platform. Yeah. I've sold a lot of animals through Fauna. I've never I've sold one animal through Kingsnake. So, Most of it's word of, word of mouth. But. So this is a question for both of you. Stephen Poole wants to know if you can recommend some genetics books to add to his collection. I'm assuming that means reptile. I'm assuming he doesn't want like... You know. So it depends on what you want out of it. Right? Is it something where you want to think more about Mendelian genetics and understand heritability, or is it a book about genetics? You know, there's they're very very different, very different kind of avenues. You know, I would imagine genetics for dummies. Is that the book you're writing? <laughs> that would be fabulous. The two of you should collaborate on that. <laughs> it is not. Um, <laughs> just, it just opened up the book and he goes, it's He's incomplete like, dominance, never... you dumbass. And then he closes it. That's yeah, all it's page, That's it. Because <laughs> I'm never doing this podcast just with her one again. Thing. That is, it says it's incomplete <laughs> dominance and parthenogenesis is real. And then he just, that's the book. Enjoy. Well, you know, book wise, I don't really know. What do, you, what do you think, Travis? Are there any books that you, you can think of that. It's, again, like you said, it's kind of what you're what you're looking for specifically. Um, one of the books that I always go back to, although the author has gotten more and more kind of extreme in his days would be Dawkins, the selfish gene, because like at the base level of just the science that he discusses in there, it's very good. Um, but he tends to go on a lot of, social diatribes as well. And, you know, as his writing career went on, you know, some of his books now are like two thirds social diatribe and one third actual science. And so it gets a little bit more tedious to deal with that end of it. Um, I don't know which edition I have, but like an evolutionary biology book or a developmental biology book. I think those are very important to have. Um, 
That's a great book. That's a good book. <clears throat> it's a yeah. Conceptual breakthrough in evolutionary genetics. It's very thin. I, said, I like that. Works. Does that have it's pictures? Written, it's written by my academic grandfather. My, post, my PhD advisor's um, PhD advisor. Postdoc advisor. Oh, that's cool. Um, but it'll go through things like chapter 14, sex chromosomes, and it's it'll lay down kind of the conceptual revolution, the standard paradigm, you know, and it's it's one page, or one one of the pages. And it'll give people an idea of what they're taught, what, what, what that means and also some additional reading if they want to go into it. Is it, written, is it written in a way that the average person – because I know like yeah. it's it's definitely a subject where a book can either be written way above people or written on, at a, a level they can understand. Do I uh, need to read it with a dictionary? <laughs> uh, well, it depends on your understanding but, of basic genetics, but it, it's a it's a great book. I, I've given – I've offered like graduate seminars using this book before, but um, but then we've then gone and read a lot of the papers that are, that are relating to it. But it's enough to make you – hopefully to give you that primer to say, oh, right, this is what a sex chromosome is, or this is what inbreeding is, or this is what gene flow is, and so on. That's a really cool book. I need more. I don't have much genetics-wise. I was about to say, you need more. I need more books. I have found that we live near a half-price books, and so now I just go in there every now and then just to see what reptile books they have, and then I buy every reptile book they have for sale on there. So our half-price books almost never has reptile books for sale. I found... Where did I find boas and pythons and other friendly snakes, which was a book that I did not have. And it, was, it was an older and book. Oh, it's that's an old book. Really Genetics in the wild. wild. That looks good. It's got a, the same author. It's got a frog. Again, on short, short chapters on, you know, there's a chapter on sex, pregnancy, and making babies. <laughs> now, so, I've, I've done that. Kingdom and how, how, how diverse it can I'm be. I'm okay with the first one. The other two. <laughs> I'm past those days. Evolutionary oddities, parthenogenesis, and it's a good book as well. I'm too old to start over. I think if people want to read books that are, you know, hopefully should expand their mind. They're they're good, and they're not going to they're not going to kind of make their brain fall out, but they should be good. It's well, and Stephen said he just needs a starting point for the rabbit hole, and I think those are probably they're two good. really good ones. I feel yeah, like those are, are probably good, good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that I enjoyed was a. Uh, Sean Carroll's Endless Forms Most Beautiful. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's got, you know, it's it's got a really good, you know, layman's explanation of a lot of the genetics concepts, and he uses a lot of real life illustrations with animals and things. Oh, that's awesome. Stephen Stephen must have gone searching for it. He found conceptual breakthroughs in evolutionary genetics for twenty five to thirty dollars, which means it's not expensive. I need to go buy that because that's something I need to add to my collection. You can, you can wait a week. So that John, we... John Grant says he's never read a reptile book, and I'm not surprised he is from Oklahoma. He probably just can't James read them. Lewis, stop it. Ouch. I'll find an old picture that book. one of the two parties here is in Oklahoma. He's in Oklahoma, yeah. but he's not from yeah, Oklahoma. Moment. Yeah, at the moment. Yeah. He's, he's currently there until someone offers him something better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how it works when you have a family. It's how it works. Well, the family would move as well. (laughs) They'd go with them. (laughs) I'm assuming love them. As much as I love Tulsa, I'm not going to Oklahoma necessarily. If someone gave them a bigger place to house more reptiles and paid them for it. Oh, there you go. As long as you have your priorities. I want want fewer reptiles, actually. So (laughs) over the next five years, I'm going to collapse down my boa constrictor, boa imperator groups. 
I didn't realize you had that many. That's a that's a lot of boas. Although yeah, you're doing smaller stuff, so at least it's not a huge amount of space taken up by larger boa species. But still enough. But I've got yeah. Think about it. Right. I've got boa sigma, boa imperator, Brazilian rainbow boas. I've got um, what other boas? Emeralds, Amazons, yeah, black tree boas, Corallus ruschenbergeri, and they so all together we've got about fifty. And 50 the imperator, how many different uh, localities do you have there? Uh, Nicaraguan, Costa Rican, uh, Kroll K, Westnet K, Lagoon K. Yet hogs? Hog Islands got those, yeah. Um, and then Boa Sigma, so we've got the Mexican stuff. Is it the cloud boat? What isn't that? That's Boa Sigma. Tamalipas. Yeah, I don't have Tamalipas. I used to have those, I don't have them now. Um, what else have we got? And I've got python. I've got the, car- the caramel Sumatran short tails. I've got Dunn's pythons. Oh, I've got the green suns in here. Dunn's pythons. My- That's one I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, they're fun little snakes. I got spotted a bunch of spotted pythons. That, that uh, uh, Ryan just gave me a bunch of them. Uh, I've got western hognose snakes. I've got Nelson's milk snake. Uh, Nelson's milk snakes. I've got Therai coming tomorrow. What else do I have? And then, I, I may have to agree. That may be a lot of that. You may have a lot of snakes. Yeah, it's about one hundred, about one hundred and forty altogether. And then, then there's three tortoises that are around the yard. What so, kind of tortoises do you have? Redfoots. I just got my first redfoot. It's yeah, still fun. baby, but yeah, they're really cool. I like them a lot. I want to pick up one of the hypomelanistic ones. I saw that yeah. from Daytona. I saw the pictures of Daytona where they had them. Um, they're neat. But I'm just wondering what those look like as adults. I've seen some hypo like tortoises that get. A lot darker as adults. I don't know if they'll be that that insane. They dark a little bit, but they're still pretty evident of being different. Yeah, yeah, so, they're they're cool. They're just, still I don't know, like five grand each or something at the moment. But it's this is an interesting question. So I'm so that's Darren again. Uh, this question is for everyone. Is there an age you think you'll stop keeping? No, I can't see not having something. Yeah, I think the collection would would reduce a little bit, but. Um, can't imagine ever not having stuff. I've had stuff for 27, 28 years. I was going to say, the only way that I can see James ever not keeping something is if he is not physically able to take care of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'd be at. Yeah. If I'm I, not able to take care of it, then I wouldn't have it around. But that's, that would be the point. At that point, you have other things to worry about than your reptile. Well, and yes. that's, that's those moments when like you see people online going, I'm getting out of reptiles. I don't know what that's like. I couldn't even imagine what that's like. Even on our lowest of lowest days, it's never been a, we're going to get rid of everything we own. I have seen now, a have lot I, of those posts in the last month or so. Have I wondered what our life would be like without reptiles? Probably on a monthly basis. But it's not, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be our life. I, I, I'm not going to lie. There's been moments when like I've had over a hundred something snakes. And I'm like, this is a lot of work. And then I thought, Man, what if I got rid of them? And then my mind goes, yeah, they're not stupid. I can't get rid of everything. Like, I, I could definitely whittle down my collection to stuff if down the line if I had to. But, yeah, I don't think there's ever an age where I could stop keep going. That's- I, I suppose part of the thing is the number of animals can be a problem depending on how often they need fed. Yeah. So if you've got 100 colubrids that eat every five to seven days and defecate every three, three times a week yeah. and stink – then that's different than having a, an emerald tree boa or 50 emerald tree boa or 100 emerald, emerald tree boas that eat every two to four weeks. Yeah. I, you know, so that it, they're, they're definitely two different animals in terms of what you, the way you keep. 
and I've only I've got um, maybe twelve snakes that require feeding every week. Everything else is on a week to to one month kind of period of feeding. Yes, I, I do love when my boas reach a little older, and I can be like, "All right, you're getting fed once a month. We're good." It's a great thing. I can't imagine some of this be like, that's one reason I've never owned indigos as much as I'd be like, I'd love to go get an indigo. That, that's a lot of food and a lot of shit. That's it. You know, I, whenever I had all these, all these corn snakes back in Ireland and maybe 50 or 60 corn snakes, God, that was just awful. The smell, <laughs> you know, feeding them every week, every five to seven days. Ah, no. So is it a bigger deal? I imagine are corn snakes a bigger deal over there. They've got to be a bigger deal than they are here. Right? Like, Corn snakes, I think. I think corn snakes are coming back to being really big here. I think they are too, but we, for for the longest time, our nat- we don't tend to put any uh, emphasis on our native stuff. Really, now lately, hog noses and corns have definitely grown, yeah. but they're still but looked at like beginner snakes and stuff like that. I just think around the rest of the world, they're probably not. Look- they're looked as like I want a corn snake. I think colubrids are well. Well, I think a lot of the mentality in the UK and Ireland is not is having a pet snake, not having a pair of pet snakes to breed. Yeah. You know, I think that seems to be a very U.S. kind of centered thing. You know, I'm not getting a snake. I'm getting a pair and I'm going to breed them. Um, I think a lot a lot of people keep a greater diversity of animals in Europe and the U.K. So they don't just have, you know, eight and a half thousand ball pythons. <laughs> they'll have colubrids and they'll have boas and they'll have pythons and stuff like that there. Um but also realize that I haven't lived there in six, well, nearly 16 years. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think the market's very, very different. Now, I, you know, I, I don't really follow it back home. I don't really follow it here anymore. Um, but it, it probably could have changed a lot, you know. Like, I do buy animals from Europe, um, and I, I get them shipped over from the ham or the Harden show. But um, I, I don't – I just buy from specific, specific, specific breeders. Um, I don't really look around and see what's for sale, but I think I do see a lot of colubrids, a lot of diversity in colubrids being produced there. Travis, how many snakes are you up to now? Uh, I'm just shy of hundred, but you know that's because of all the cougar days. <laughs> so, do you still have all? Have you sold any of those, or how long? What 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 are you waiting to to be able to sell them? Like what? How many meals, or how? Oh, but right now I'm just being lazy and not listening. <laughs> I, uh, I sent one pair out to uh, Billy, and I got another pair going out tomorrow for uh, Zach. Our, our buddy John Grant, uh, someone had posted one, uh, and he's like, I really like these. And he's talking about getting them for somebody. He's like, you do realize Travis Wyman had a crap ton of them this year. If you're just, like, just contact him, and you can get little snakes that will bite you, because JT loves to get bit. So... Well, I mean, they're perfect snakes for it. I mean, they, they come out of the egg ready to bite you. Sounds like rainbow boas. like rainbow boas. They come out. <laughs> I, yeah, or my, maybe it's just yours. Yours are always pissy no, when they come out. No, that's rainbow boas. I imagine yeah. emeralds are probably the same way. Um, I've never been bit by an emerald. I've been keeping them for 25 years. Really? And the babies, like last year's litter, um, no, they were they were fine. So you know, that the, tells me you need to get an emerald from his again, line. I, I rarely handle any snake that I've got. Yeah. You know, I, I don't feel the need to have to go in and wrap these things around my neck or, you know, they're, I can happily observe them, 
and stuff like that. You, you know, don't I don't walk into the mall with an emerald around your neck and uh, I don't walk into the mall. Period. So <laughs> <laughs> we did, we went to the mall for the first time. And I don't know how long the other day. You only went once. I went two days in a row that with that kid. Fault. That was your own fault. God bless it. Um, there was one other thing I had. I posted another thing because I, I was trying to get together some questions I want to start asking every week to to our guests. And here's one that Darren asked that I thought was pretty good. Um, he said, luckily, he hasn't had any experience with this yet, but how and when do you find the confidence to assist feed for the first time? Some choose not to assist feed. However, if I spend $500 or $1,000 on or more on a snake, I have to do everything possible to ensure the survival of the animal. So I guess it kind of depends uh, if you produce the snake versus if you buy the snake. But if you buy the snake, you hope it's already eating. But Warren, you talked earlier. You're, I assume you're kind of in the same camp as me. You don't really feed. If it doesn't eat, it doesn't no. eat. That's it. You know, I'm. And Ryan, Ryan Young and I have talked about this before, you know, it's kind of like, why, if, if the animal is not predisposed to eating, you know, is that, and, and, and that could be something. Oh no. Warren froze. Oh no, we froze. What the hell? Uh, oh. Oh, 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 we're everybody's back. back. We're back. I think I was fine because I could still. We I think were. I was on for. I think you guys. We, yeah, you guys we messed up. Warren and I were fine. I'm on a university wife of the internet system. It's pretty good. Ah, you found the one place uh, in Oklahoma that has internet. Yeah, but the uh, yeah, I, I'm just not a fan of, of propagating animals that aren't doing well. Um, and I, uh, I, and I, I think people have to get that into their head that. Um, it's not a wise thing to do. Yeah, right. If you spend five hundred or thousand dollars on an animal and it's not eating, well, you need to go back to the person you got it from because that's the problem to start off with. Yeah. Um, but if you produce it, you know, you got to think about what that's going to do in, in the long run to your to your line of animals that you're trying to propagate. You're conserving a trait that's necessarily that can be detrimental. It's not necessarily beneficial. I feel like Travis, you're probably in the same boat, right? Yes and no. Um, Boom. Well, I think it also has to do with the species that you have because some species are not going to be as, like, you can't just toss them a mouse and call it a day. Like, Travis has shit that eats weird shit. Yeah, and that's that's, that's where I'm I'm kind of in the knower category. Like, I'm bringing in import animals and strange and unusual species and stuff, and for those... I may assist feed, you know, to try and get a kick started in captivity so that I can, I need, I need to get adults to live long enough to breed for me to get babies that then if those babies, you know, if some of them suck and they're not going to make it, then they suck and they don't make it. And the strong babies from that are the ones that I'm keeping to propagate on. Yeah. But that initial stock, my goal is to get them to live so that I can start a captive population. I can um, totally, uh, yeah, I totally I, mean, I, I can see all sides. I definitely see the folks that are like, well, I got to try everything I want because I don't want this poor little baby to die. I get that. But I'm also with Warren, like, evolutionary speaking, it just wasn't supposed to make it. Like, some of these things are, there's a reason our animals yeah, have I mean, 30 if babies. If I had shot a ball python and the ball python, you know, if it's not eating and it's not eating and it's not eating, then it's not eating, and I'm I'm not going to go to extreme measures. And I don't right. care if it's a normal or a 17 gene snake. Right, I, and I agree My with you. My goal is to make animals that are going to thrive in captivity, 
And so yeah, if, if you're if you're not going to eat, then you're not going to thrive. And I'm not I'm not about keeping those gene pool that gene in the pool. It's just and the, the only time that I'll go against that my kind of you know if it doesn't make it doesn't make it is whenever I'm producing some of the rare. Um, animals like the Corallus Rischenbergeri. So, you know, we, we imported a group from Trinidad. It's the only group in the world. Um, and they can start off as lizard eaters. If you don't have live lizards to feed them, it'd be a problem. So you, you have to be willing if you, if you want to, um, force or to assist feed or the Corallus grenadensis, those kind of things. I will assist those, but a, a rainbow boa that's not feeding, you know, that's, I'm just not doing it. A boa constrictor, I'm just not doing it. Um, it's just, um, and, and what people also have to remember with assist feeding is that they often leave it too late. So their animal is a bag of skin and bones. Yeah. Then they try to assist feed it and the animal dies. And the, the reason the animal dies is that it requires energy to digest food. And whenever the animal has literally no energy, it can't, it just, it dies. We just experience so you, need kick into, you need to start the assist feeding earlier on. So if you've got a species that's rare, and it's not a natural rodent eater or lizard eater or whatever you can use, um, then you need to start assist feeding pretty early on. But what I do with like with my tree boas is that I will use rodents as the food, but I'll wash them. And I, and I bought the um, gecko scent and the animal scent and the frog scent from the company that does the Reptilinks. Yeah. And that works really well. And it was like 100 bucks for those three. But I keep them in the freezer, defrost them whenever I need them. I also... Just a local grocery store, I can pick up concentrated chicken broth sachets, and that works really well for them as well. So oh. yeah, I'll just vary between those. And and if after a couple of weeks that those rare tree boas are not eating, then I will I will go to the assist feeding. The other thing you've got to do is it's kind of weird, you know, with some of these tree boas that I've got. You know, you think right, they're going to be eating live food or whatever. We've had great success with our Trinidad tree boas by just dropping a rodent that is absurdly large for a baby animal on the cage, a dead rodent uh, on the bottom of the cage and coming back the next day, and most of them actually eat them. Oh. It's just absurd. Not what you expect. You know, they're not eating, you know, <clears throat> white lab mice in uh, the Trinidad you, rain. Are plants. you telling me there's not little white rats running around Trinidad? Yeah, apparently not. Apparently not, but you know, they do really well. And Robert, so you said- those ones I will, I will assist feed. Yeah. The, those kind of really rare animals. I've got one that I'm going to assist feed tonight. It's, but it's a, it's a baby Corallus Richenberger right, from Venezuela. And there's maybe six of them in the U S you know? <laughs> so, um, I will assist feed that. You know? Yeah. yeah. It dies, it dies. We'll just make more of them next year. But, um, it's, um, I'll give, I'll try to get that one just going a little bit. Then Robert, you just had a ball Python that just wouldn't make it right. She did with the, and finally, Rachel came down and she's like, it finally ate. I'm like, it's going to die. I said, that thing was so skinny, that meal's going to kill it. And sure enough, the next day I went in there and it had regurged. So I picked it up and threw it in with the, it was still alive, barely. So I recycled it to a king snake. Yeah. That's all of it. It just wasn't going to make it. There was no way. Yeah. I own, I own two king snakes now to help me with that. With, with Sambo, I just don't make it. Yep. I, I can be like, uh, you. <laughs> this random king snake gets yeah. You're like Oprah. You get a ball python. You yeah. get a ball python. <laughs> yeah. You know, and as long as it's that, as long as it's not the people that are doing that with, with just normal ball pythons, right? Because I think they're going to have trouble selling them. You know, it's uh, sick animals that are not going to make it. That's one thing. Yeah. See, um, I, yeah. I so I listened to uh, Modern Medusa podcast today. It was the one where Corey Martin was on. 
uh, and they actually referenced us on there talking about what we were talking uh, to Domin- uh to oh, what was it oh we were talking to Nick about how folks want to call out uh, normals or get upset when they have normals and they just want to get rid of them and Dominique was very much for uh, for calling out normal ball pythons because of seeing so many of them in rescues and I think you see them in rescues but I think you're seeing a small fraction of what's really out there in the rescues I think just killing it because you don't want it to end up in a rescue is is kind of weird like I, I'm I'm all for if it wasn't eating I get that but just because I don't know you're, you're making up uh, the future for this animal and you think that it's going to end up in a rescue it was a weird reason to call it out but to each their own if you want to get rid of them and feed your point we see as many morphs and rescues yeah it's just many mojaves and and spiders and pastels all in rescues so if that's what you want to call them rescues or whatever but <laughs> yes no. uh, the people on facebook they go uh who's got snakes for free i yeah. have a rescue like, that's yeah. not how that works no rescue has ever gone out looking for animals not yeah. once uh, Stephen Poole, I just wanted to throw this out there, said he went and purchased every one of the books you suggested earlier. So oh, good stuff. Yeah, great. <laughs> went ahead and got them. That's not bad. 40, he said 45 45 bucks. One was new and three were like new. And he for had- all four shipped. That's awesome. That's pretty That's good right. price for four books. It is yeah. approaching my bedtime. Folks. I'm, I'm agreeing with <laughs> I know. you, Robert. I'm normally showered and in bed by 10. Y'all are old. All right. Shut up, James. <laughs> uh so I've been like that since I was 20 years old. James man. stays up until 3.30 and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, your body is going to die one day yes, soon. It's going to die one day. Because you, it can't function like this. I don't be in bed at 1.30. God, <laughs> no. Get up at 6.30. No. Um, I need a good eight hours. Normally I'm good on about five hours, but right now, being shorthanded and having to get out there and work and the heat. all day. Um, yeah, I've been yawning. I almost texted John and said, Y'all are doing, um, I'm out tonight <laughs> because I was so exhausted. I was like, No, nah, I can't do that again. Hard to do that when I was sick. <laughs> I want to thank both of y'all for coming. I was super excited to have both of y'all on here. Uh, Me too. You, you two are, and I, and I make fun. I make fun of Travis all the time, but Travis is one of my favorite people on earth. And I, the two of you, I respect your opinions uh, in the hobby more than most. Um, and so I was super happy to have y'all on. And I said, I love Warren's on 5 million podcasts. If you want to know his background, go listen to Chris or I'm sure you're on Morelia Python. I'm sure you've done the Herb Culture podcast at some point. So go listen to those for the background because it's very interesting and you can hear him answer on all three of them. I'm sure. Hey, what was the first reptile you got? (laughs) I don't want to ask that question. Uh, But thank you all for coming on. Warren, if people want to reach out to you, uh, if they have questions uh, about Parthenogenesis, you can ask somebody else, leave them alone. But if they want to ask you about boas, or anything else, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, um, well, Facebook. I have a standard Facebook, Warren Booth on Facebook. Um, I do not accept friends if I don't know the people, generally. Amen That's to me. that. I don't, I don't so know. I get, I, like, <laughs> I get like two and a half thousand waiting for end requests that I'll never respond to. Um, oh, see, because they send me an email or a message to say, hey, I am this person and I'd like to talk about this and whatever. Um, my other Facebook, I've got the uh, Boa Booth Facebook page, which Such is just awesome snake stuff. Yeah, great. Um, and also the same thing on Instagram. And I use Instagram a lot more, but you, you can send me emails through or messages through any of those. I'm happy to respond. I I respond to mostly mostly every day. People will send me a question or two. But um, and also my university webs or university my research website. Um, 
booth-lab.org. Um, go to Warren's university site and go to his publications and read his stuff and then try to argue with him about prices. <laughs> <laughs> I still love the dude that was like, when I sent it to him, he goes, I've read that. Have you? And I'm like, yes, and I've talked to him. I, I, that person, obviously, if he did read them, had no idea what he was reading. Well, I think that's the thing. I think people might read them or say they've read them. And they, they don't really understand what they're reading, and therefore they make up their own mind about it. Similar to what we're seeing today with science anyway in general. You know, they they, oh. they, they glance at a couple of words and they think that they're, they've read it, but they haven't. You I'll know, be honest. If I don't understand it, I'll ask James. And then if he explains it to me and I still don't understand it, I message Travis. <laughs> but that's, but I'm, I'm always, that's I'm always happy to ask I can. And same thing, like I go to the Arlington show every, every year, a couple of times a year or whatever, so... I'm there and you see me just ask me questions. I was see. so sad that I did not go to Oklahoma and I didn't get a there. chance. He, he wasn't there. He had, yes. I didn't go to it. Yeah. I, I rarely go to the local shows. I want to go to the, the all, this, all this time I thought that you guys had gotten to meet him that weekend and no. was slightly no, jealous. He missed and the Lord of the Fly show. He, well. didn't, he didn't get to see all five trillion flies. Because I've met Travis. I spent all weekend with electric fly swatters <laughs> just killing flies all weekend. Yeah. I do, I do want to go to that show. It's just, it's difficult, you know, with two young kids and I travel a lot anyway. You can so bring him with you. No, uh, no. <laughs> I How old are they? Four and seven. That is spoken that's like a, perfect no, that's spoken like a true father. He's like, no, I want to go enjoy that. So bring them. It's also Oklahoma, which is riddled with covid okay well okay. the last thing i want to do with my four and seven year old is, is bring them into a reptile show which is probably not going to have many people wearing masks no also factual so sorry but i like <laughs> i like my children's lives so uh, yeah i can respect that <laughs> travis if folks want to get a hold of you and not the guy that rides uh motorcycles motocross yeah so travis wyman on facebook um snakes and bakes on instagram you can email me, A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at Gmail. Um, you can also find me on the Morph Market Reptile Forum. I tend to lurk there pretty often. I still love that you have one of the most confusing emails on Earth. It's not confusing. <laughs> it's, just it's not a super easy one. Well, okay, but it's it's from my carnivorous plant hobby, which I was really heavily into before, and I just carried it over for my you know my reptiles and stuff too. So. You know, it's a tricky email when when someone says, "Hey, what's your email?" and you just start spelling it, you don't actually say it. Because Katie has to do the same thing with her email. She, it's <laughs> I won't say it on here, but Sorry. it's it's not that hard. It's just it's a weird one, and she has, she always just starts spelling it for people, and you can tell that they're confused. Because whenever I say it, they're like, "What?" Yeah. I don't think I have to take a shower when I get home. Millie has given me a bath. <laughs> She's getting licked by a dog. Anybody listening, that's a dog, not yeah. like a yes. person in here. Yeah. Just Millie licking is a dog. Millie is That'd a spoilt dog with spoilt a T with on a the end. Yes, it's that bad that it is spoilt with a T. Spoilt. All right, Robert, Robert. If people want to get a hold of you. LSReptileRex.com. Dot com. <laughs> yep. Uh, if you're going to be at Conroe, uh, it's too late to get your orders in. But uh, yeah. get there early if you want a rack. And go straight to uh, him. Probably have nearly half of them sold that I'm taking already. Yeah. Yeah. So if you show up on Sunday wanting a snake rack, that like was a bad idea. Two trailers full of shit. Really? Yeah. So this would be the most I've ever taken to a show. It's almost 40 racks. Oh, shit. 
Yeah. So. All right, James. People want to get a hold of us. It is. We can get a hold of me. It's simply underscore serpents on Instagram or simply serpents on Facebook or the Reptile Gumbo podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and at gmail.com. Uh, thank you guys for coming on. This has been awesome. I was super glad to finally get Warren on. Uh, Travis is like the 700th time we've been on here. So. And we love it every time. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, it'd be great if I could get some of the baked goods. Uh, it's not my fault. Like a raspberry cheese. I had cake. pretzels. <clears throat> Yeah, she brought you pretzels. I did. They were good pretzels. I had a brownie and a piece of banana nut bread before I came here that my daughter made. I and had caramel in the brownie and walnuts. Oh, it was amazing. You know what? I have a giant jug of peanut M&M's downstairs. They're Fuck Halloween peanut M&M's, I'm going to go eat half a jug of, of peanut M&M's. All right, guys. So. Don't go anywhere while, when, while he ends the broadcast. So we Thanks, make sure we have everything. everybody for watching and listening. We will be back next week. Goodbye. Bye.